Bem-vindos ao Type Theory for All Podcast. As always, this is your host Pedro Abreu speaking directly from Lafayette, Indiana. In today's episode, I have an amazing conversation with Cody Rue about the good old incompleteness theorems. We go through its underlying historical context, Hilbert's programs, how it relates with Turing, with Church, with John von Neumann, and a lot, lot more. Towards the end, he also speaks a little bit about his research on termination. And surprisingly or not, Godot Incompleteness Theorems has a lot to say about termination. So without further ado, let's get into it! Welcome everyone to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. It's my great pleasure to be here with Cody Rue here today. He is quite active on Twitter, although it's it's true everyone's lost that he left now, but he's here with us today to talk about some really nice stuff. Welcome to the show, Cody. Thanks so much. I'm super excited to be here. I think this podcast is great. And um, the subject itself is is absolutely fantastic. Like I cannot emphasize how excited I am to be talking about this, uh, the, the specific theorem and everything that comes around it. It's just you know, it's like the queen of all theorems, I think. Oh, I definitely feel feel the same. It's like, when I, I remember when I was reading Godot Asherbah, it's just so, ah, oh, it just gives you so much awe and pleasure to understand these things, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I wanted to bring that book up too, because when I when I started college, so, so you know, in high school, I already was kind of like, uh, I think, you know, I think I want to do math and I, I, I didn't think I, I like foundations of math. And then I think, you know, first few months I was in college, I checked that book out and it, that I was sold. I like, that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, in retrospect, I, I still love the book. I think it's, it's very, it's like the book itself is just huge and it's got a lot of stuff yeah. that goes all yeah. over the place. But um you know, it's still a fun book, and and the theorem itself is just like, yeah, it's just one of the greatest theorems there is. The it's 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 a really accessible book. You know, it's it's a really this math and logic stuff is really hard many times, right? Like it's really technical, and there's a lot that you have to learn along the way to actually understand what's going on. So I think the book. At least when I was reading, I, I thought that it did a really good job to bridge this gap, right? Between yeah, 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 yeah. right. Yeah, it's very. Uh, I'll talk about this in a in a bit. The the theorem itself is actually kind of accessible itself, right? It's very elementary theorem compared to some of the other big big theorems out there, right? Um, you know, you look at anything in number theory, anything in topology, there are some exciting things there, but they're just hard. Whereas this is really kind of, you can kind of explain it to, to someone with just high school education, which is, I don't know, it's just kind of magical. Before we get into the more technical details, uh, I would like you to introduce yourself a little more and tell our audience how you got involved into math, into all this type theory stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'd love to try to give a, a short summary. So um, I've really always liked math uh, since I was a kid. I was kind of a bookworm as a kid. And, um, you know, I, I just felt kind of drawn to, to science and mathematics. 
I uh, briefly, like, you know, I was interested in physics and, oh, you know, I, I think a lot of people that listen to this can relate. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in France. Um, I, I went to college at Grenoble, which has a very strong um, math and uh, computer science kind of um, institutions. And um, yeah, for, for, for the first few years, I was just focused on math, just doing all math. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to do logic. And um, what I found was the, the mathematical kind of institutions in France weren't really that interested in logic. And um, th there are some places in Paris where they, where they really do, you know, pure logic. But... Um, you know, where I was, wasn't one of those places. And, and, but the computer scientists were all about logic. And so, um, and so, so I kind of felt like I should probably go into computer science. Um, even though, you know, I was also learning, you know, programming C and, and, you know, hardware, and that wasn't really, you know, <laughs> that wasn't very exciting to me. So, uh, as I finished my undergrad, I went to Nancy, uh, to Nice, which is in the south of France, and um, there they they had a few kind of logic courses or theoretical computer science courses in the math department. And um, when I did my kind of my undergraduate thesis in France, again, I, I did it with a computer scientist. There's also a very strong school at uh, Sophie Antipolis, uh, right next to, to Nice. And um, yeah, that, that, that was kind of it. From then on, I was, uh, you know, I was sucked into the French computer science, you know, milieu. And I did my PhD at, in Nancy, uh, in Ria. And uh, I did it on uh, termination, which I, I might actually get to later in this podcast, because it turns out to be related somehow to the subject, which is kind of exciting. So your PhD was in termination of, of what? Oh, uh, of high order rewrite systems. So uh, this is kind of like computing paradigm. You know, there's the land of calculus and there's Turing machines. And we might talk about this more in detail later, but um, basically the land of calculus, you know, and rewriting, you know, are these kind of equational reasoning systems that are very nice mathematically. Um, and, you know, a lot of work has been done on them and it, it has interesting challenges. So, so yeah, so I studied, you know, I, I don't think I, the work I did was groundbreaking, but I, I studied some problems surrounding that. And um, this is very related to, you know, similar issues in type theory, which is kind of cool. And yeah, so I was kind of steeped in this French school of type theory. And how did you end up coming here to the US? <laughs> I did a postdoc with Jeremy Avigad um, at CMU in Pittsburgh. Um, it was a fantastic experience. Um, Jeremy is brilliant and he knows a lot of things about a lot of things. And he's a logician. So, um, you know, this really tickled my logic, you know, interest. Um, and he's in the philosophy department, which I, I also find cool because, you know, I really like the, the philosophical aspects of all this. Um, and yeah, and then by the end of that, 
postdoc basically you know we wanted to stay in the us and we wanted to do exciting things involving computer science and um so i started a job at draper labs here in uh cambridge and recently i, I moved to aws amazon web services and uh basically doing software verification type stuff which has become also a pretty popular subject recently yeah it seems to me that more and more companies are starting to use more formal verification sort of stuff what are the kind of work you guys do there just just a quick idea it's extremely varied um so uh, so, so, okay. So one of the reasons I think software verification has become more popular is, um, A, of course, you know, a lot of money is at stake uh, in software. But um, another thing is cybersecurity has become just this huge, huge business. And, and it's both a business on the attacker side where there's things like ransomware and, you know, this whole like cyber warfare kind of kind of industry. And, um, and so in defense, people have to take cybersecurity very seriously. And it turns out um, formal methods and program verification it is really kind of necessary there to, to even get any guarantees. Because, you know, if you're, if, if you're just testing and, and hoping nothing terrible happens, that works pretty well until you have an adversary that's looking to make all sorts of bad yeah. things happen. So, so I do verification on things that are security related. Um, uh, another thing AWS is really interested in is uh, verifying concurrency because it's very, very hard to reason about concurrency oh, and, yeah. and testing concurrency is quite hard too because you kind of have to sort of um, test this huge combination of things happen before other things or after other things. Yeah. And so that really explodes. And so reasoning, you know, reasoning systems can sort of, you know, reason abstractly about the order in which things happen. And so they don't need to test every combination. Um, so those two things are really big right now. Um, and then, uh, you know, Amazon, AWS also does uh, kind of, you know, um, find bugs. Uh, so, so it's kind of um, lightweight verification, uh, which is pretty popular now, right? If you, if you start, you know, if you compile your program, you, you'll get warnings and those warnings have gotten more sophisticated over time. And, uh, and, and, you know, if you're doing anything, you should be using a linter. That linter should be telling you things that are, you know, perhaps non-trivial, right? Like uninitialized memory or use after free or, you know, in Java concurrency bugs, null pointer dereference bugs, all sorts of things. Um, yeah, so, so it really has, yeah, it is an exciting subject right now. People are really starting to take it seriously. And I remember when I was at Galois, there was a, a project that was ongoing together with Amazon that they were formally verifying their some of their APIs with um, some of Galois tools. That was it's very interesting, you know. Um, not only is being used, but companies are are getting around to try to help each other somehow, right? There's yeah, a lot yeah. of I think, value on those things. Yeah, I, I 
you know, I have high hopes because this is a, an exciting field, right? And I it got is. into it for, for all the wrong reasons, right? I, I wasn't there <laughs> to make money. I, I was there to like, you know, like an artist, you know, that's that likes painting. Um, and, and so the fact that people actually kind of care about this thing is kind of exciting to me because, you know, it means people right. care about care about me and what I do. So, yeah, and that's exactly I, why we're here today. We want to go back to the... I wanna I wanna say maybe maybe you don't agree with me. I don't know. But I wanna say that this somehow the Godot incompleteness theorem is more or less where computer science begins to me. Cantor and then Godot for me is kind of the beginning of computer science. Would you, would you agree with that? Do you think it makes sense? I it, it's hard for me to wholeheartedly agree with that because I, I'm I'm very passionate about the history of logic and um and and so, and so over the years, I've learned a whole bunch of stuff about a whole bunch of people. And, and the more you learn, the more you see kind of the, all the complexities and all the details yeah. and who exactly, you know, understood what, when. And, and so I can't really say, okay, this is the start of computer science or this is the start of computer science because I see, you know, this complex gradient of, you know, you know, Boole and Frege and, you know, and Whitehead and then Gödel and Post and uh, Turing and Church and, you know, uh, and, and if you let me talk about it, like I, I can fill this whole hour yes. about this. Um, I was actually, this might be a good segue into the history of the theorem, but, um, you know, just in conclusion, I, I, it's not, it's not clear you can really set you know, a line in the sand and say, this is computer science, like right, right here, this is starting. No, I mean, um, yeah, I'm trying to to understand here, you know, what was going on more or less in this time in history, right? What was, what were people interested in? Yes. Because yes. this is not a question that comes out of thin air, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Okay, so um, fascinating things were happening. I, I will say this as a side note. If you haven't done it yet, I would highly recommend uh, reading um, Logic Comics. It's like a comic book. Um, it's, um, I, I actually forget who the authors were. I, I only remember one of the authors, uh, Christos Papadimitriou, who's like, um, very influential computer scientist, um, but he partnered with, uh, you know, comic book writers and they wrote about this whole period of history and they dramatized it a little bit. Um, but it's, it's kind of a nice, you know, introduction to the characters and the ideas of the time. So I do recommend it as kind of like a, you know, it, it's much lighter read than good Elisha Bach and, and it's, I, I I like comic books, but this is kind of a nice, you know, history of history of logic. And it's like, it turns out it was an exciting period of time. So, okay, so the setting, so so the theorem was originally uh, published in 1931. So so what what was the picture in 1931? Um, uh, basically, um, the, the logicist program, um, which was take all of mathematics, all the theorems and definitions and logical reasoning rules and devise essentially a calculus, a, a system of symbolic manipulation that captures all these rules that mathematicians actually use to define things and to prove things. And, 
you know, for a while, even at the beginning of, of the, of the 20th century, people were, people were like, this, this can't be done. Right. It's like, like in every field of philosophy, right. If somebody says, Oh, come up with a formal rules for, you know, ethics or, you know, formal rules for politics, it, it can't be done, but it can be done for mathematics. So, so like miraculously, you know, by the the mid 1920s, basically people had come up with these symbolic manipulation systems that seemed to capture all of what we wanted to do in mathematics. It seemed to be able to define, you know, the natural numbers, operations on those, and reasoning about those, and induction, and all these things mathematicians do. It seems to be able to do them. It's very tedious to turn it into this formal system, but it's possible. So, you know, with, with some snafus, right? Like Frege had this system and, and um, it turned out to be inconsistent. You know, Russell noticed this and, and, you know, he had this whole development that was completely negated by the inconsistency. But, but then, you know, by that time, um, uh, Russell and Whitehead and Ernst Sermelo had come up with systems of their own and those systems did not seem inconsistent. So, um, and they seemed powerful enough to capture everything that was being done in mathematics at that time. And so, you know, basically logicism had won, like there existed a symbolic system that uh, managed to kind of capture everything that was informal going on in mathematics at the time. And it worked and basically it was finished, right? The whole field was like, this brilliant victory of, of philosophy. Um, and, and roughly, you know, the only questions that remained were, well, uh, did, did, did we screw up somewhere? And is there, you know, some remaining inconsistency hidden in our rules? Like, it doesn't look like it, but, but maybe we got it wrong. And also, did we forget any rules, right? At the time, like the axiom of choice was kind of controversial. It wasn't obvious that it was needed. And yeah, if, if you, you know, if you've got to come up with the act of choice, which is this kind of really counterintuitive rule, maybe you've forgotten some other rules, right? People, people were trying to prove the continuum hypothesis and it wasn't clear that people had all the rules. So um, basically David Hilbert, um, you know, and, and, and some of his acolytes, uh, notably, uh, Ackerman, whose first name I forget, and um, Paul Bernays, um, you know, formulated this program called called the Hilbert program, which is okay. Let's let's bootstrap mathematics. Let's bootstrap trust in mathematics. Right? There's all these, you know, there there's these formal systems, and they talk about infinity, and and this seems fishy, right? We we don't have good intuition about infinite sets and infinite things, but we do have really good intuition about finite sets and finite numbers and all that's all that's pretty rock solid. But these symbolic manipulation systems, right? These logics, they're, they're finite. They're just systems of manipulating symbols. So let's just use our finitist reasoning principles to prove that these symbolic systems that involve manipulating, you know, symbols but that prove things about infinity, let's prove that those are consistent, right? And this seems possible. 
because you know you can just you can it's just a statement about you know it, it's like it's like uh proving theorems about prime numbers right it's just manipulating symbols and making sure that you can't produce a proof of false and you know while we're at it we should prove that they're complete prove that they that they're that there's nothing that they can't prove that's that's true and um now that we have these formal systems written down, we can actually do that, right? The systems are there. We can actually analyze them mathematically and kind of bootstrap mathematics into confidence. And, and once you've done this, you can, you can be very sure that, you know, using all these, these theorems about infinite sets, it never hurts, right? You've shown that the system is consistent. And, and so, who, who cares if sets, you know, infinite sets exist or they don't exist. You, you've got, you've got the system down. It's a finite system. You've proven that it's consistent. You know, it can't hurt to assume infinite sets. So, so that was the next step. Uh, and that's what was called the Hilbert program. And, and that's the stage, right? This is the, the, the setting in which Goodall comes in. He, he knew about this program. He, he was trying to participate in, in this. He had already made some steps forward. He, he'd proven the, the completeness theorem uh, in 1929, I think. And um, great. So, you know, the next big step was, you know, solving th this Hilbert program, proving, proving the final step. And uh, it turned out that it, this the, the the incompleteness theorems completely shattered this idea um, and essentially just just these very very strong impossibility theorems essentially said this the, these goals of the Hilbert program are impossible to reach you you can't do any of these things uh, you can't bootstrap mathematics you can't build your trust in consistency and you can't ever be sure that you have all the all the rules there, right? You, you'll never be done. Uh, you know, every reasonable system is going to be incomplete. And yeah, I mean, that's that that was the, the big historical event, right? And so and so there really is a before 1931 and after 1931 in mathematical logic. Do you know how the how the community reacted to this to this? Because I remember reading, for example, when Cantor came up with with infinity of infinities, right? The, the community didn't take it very well and was very like, oh, this doesn't make sense. How was it for Goto? Um, you know, I don't actually have a perfect answer for this. Um, the the um, I think the popular conception, but I don't know how true this is, was that Hilbert just didn't just didn't understand the results. He he didn't understand <laughs> to what they, they are subtle, right? They're subtle yeah. results. Um, and, and at the time they came out, he didn't understand just how far reaching and just absolutely destroying uh, these theorems were. They 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 really absolutely completely negated the the program. Um, but but it's not obvious, right, from from the original paper. Um, I, I also think famously, uh, John von Neumann, who, 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 you know, of course is like this iconic mathematician who worked in all these different fields and was also a logician. Um, 
and, and also kind of notoriously quick at picking things up and understanding their intuitive consequences. Um, he seemed to understand pretty quickly that this was a pretty big deal and this was actually really going to change the, the field of logic. Um, and then he and Goodall corresponded for, for, for several years, I think. Um, I guess he also independently came up with the second incompleteness theorem, but um, oh, as he as he wrote to Gödel about it, he was like, "Oh, I, I I found this great consequence," and Gödel was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I got a, I've already got a paper in the works," and uh, <laughs> you know, arguably, you know, you might want to call it the von Neumann Gödel theorem or the Gödel von Neumann right. theorem, but you know, von Neumann has already like so many things named after yeah. him. You know, it's like Euler. Yeah. Like at some point you know, you can be like, okay, whatever. Um, and Gödel did, you know, th there's no question that Gödel did discover this theorem first, right? Um, it's not like, you know, there's no debate. Um, so, so yeah, so the, the reaction was mixed. Uh, some, some people like understood the scope and were shocked. Um, I, I'm not sure. So, so there were different schools of thought at the time, including intuitionism and, uh, you know, so, some thoughts on, yeah, <laughs> some thoughts on like not the, the, the logicist program. And so I think they, they thought this was a good thing because, you know, essentially, you know, intu intuition is going to always play a role or something. And, and, I think there, you know, immediately there was a lot of debate about the significance of these theorems and that debate has essentially never stopped, even though now we really like, we understand the theorems very well. We understand exactly how strong they are. Um, but I'm not sure we all agree even to this day about really what, you know, what the philosophical consequences are. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I I would agree with that, and it's very it's very not counterintuitive as well. But um, you you were you were mentioning about intuitionism versus classicism that was going on back in this time. Could you give a, a brief uh, explanation? What what are those about? I uh, was actually hoping not to do that because I don't feel <laughs> really qualified. But I, I can say that um, you know that that there was some disagreement about the logicist program at the time. So, so the, the logicists were like really, you know, believing in this symbolic representation of reasoning and kind of essentially denying that there were significant meaning to anything else. Right. It was just about the symbols on the paper. And uh, you know, th there's some complicated history here because, you know, um, there was the, the Vienna School of Philosophy that was trying to address much bigger problems in epistemology. And so they had a lot of thoughts about this theorem as well. And of course, Gödel was at Vienna at the time as well. And, um, and then there was Poincaré in France who, who was like very kind of antithetical to these ideas and um, kind of ironically made some very, very significant mathematical mistakes in his career, <laughs> but, you know, still had a you know, very good career. Um, and he wasn't really a logician. He was just sort of interested in the process of mathematics. 
And then, you know, Brouwer founded this kind of school of intuitionism where he was like, you know, if, if you can't show me a construction, right, really build something that you can exhibit, then, you know, you haven't really proven the thing, right? And so there's this kind of intuitive notion of like producing something, something very computational about it. And, and I think a little bit later in the, in the later 30s, you know, Komogorov um, came up with a very mathematical formulation of this. And then, um, is it Aaron Hating came up with a logical setting that, that kind of made intuitionism work. But the story goes, and again, I don't know how true this is, Brouwer is very opposed to formal systems in general. And so Hating's kind of recasting of Brouwer's ideas into a formal setting was kind of not <laughs> completely kosher as far as Brouwer was concerned. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I can say much more about who thought what, you know, and what exactly were the tensions. I, I think, you know, I'm not sure the formless one, but certainly the intuitionists didn't win, right? The, yeah, the, yeah. the excluded middle definitely made its way into every part of mathematics and, you know, the Zermelo's axioms became this kind of standard set of axioms, you know, used by everybody when they thought about axioms at all. And, you know, that kind of was a situation mathematicians really don't like to think about foundations that much when they don't have to, they, they've got other things to think about. And yeah. so you kind of, that was the, the, the status quo in mathematics until basically modern times with some small caveats and um, you know, computer scientists did, did care a lot about this and, and they had very different ideas, but um, you know, but they, they, also don't necessarily think that much about you know yeah. the logical foundations um but you know to a certain extent i would say i would say that these are discussions that are still ongoing in a sense mathematicians often enough i feel like they really don't care whether you use exclude middle the axiom of choice whereas what we're doing here in type theory we're like you cannot do that that's that yeah, doesn't yeah, make yeah. sense right yeah so yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of what what's kind of nice. I I, I kind of agree with the mathematicians in some sense, which mm -hmm. is philosophy is fun, um, but if you're doing mathematics, you're not really doing philosophy, and so you don't need to care that much. And um, what I like is when the rare occasions when logic intersects with other disciplines. Uh, like computer science, like various aspects of computer science and various aspects of the mathematics too. I, I love it when that happens. I, I think that's much funner. Um, and I think uh, this like topos theoretic picture is just very exciting because yeah, it's just kind of like, why should you care about intuitionism? If you're what do you topos theoretic picture? What? Oh. Yeah, uh, this, this brings us a little bit a field, I think, but uh, the short story is you you can build, um, you, you can build models of uh, set theory, intuitionistic set theory, in which the excluded middle doesn't hold, and then you 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 can interpret those models in various fields of mathematics, like algebraic geometry or algebraic number theory, or you know homotopy theory, 
And um, the, those interpretations are perfectly valid in classic mathematics, but they, they're, you know, they're internal universes in which the excluded middle doesn't hold. And so you can actually kind of use your ordinary set theory reasoning skills without the excluded middle as an intuitionist. And then, you know, take a step back and look from the outside. And you're actually talking not about a set theory, but about, you know, a, a mathematical universe that is like set theory in which the excluded middle doesn't hold. So, um, so, so Topos theory is all about this. It, it provides mm -hmm. a precise definition for this mathematical universe. And it was invented, you know, with the express purpose of talking about um, algebraic geometry. And there are very natural toposes, examples of toposes that for, for which the excluded middle does not hold. And so it's kind of the revenge of intuitionistic mathematics. <laughs> you know? So yeah, so that's, that's a whole other podcast. Again, one which I'm not qualified to to like give yeah that's that's definitely fine i don't want to put you in a rough spot so it's definitely fine if you if you don't know much about this but you mentioned that i'm, I'm really curious because you mentioned that poincare did many bad choices in his career like oh uh, <laughs> I, do I don't mean? know that there were bad choices but um uh yeah and apologies to poincare's estate for like, <laughs> like these are these are famous mistakes right so so Poincaré um, stated several theorems, uh, which ended up being false. And, and they were very kind of significant theorems. And, and so, um, you know, that happened. And it happened partly because he wasn't rigorous enough to prove the theorems to his entire satisfaction. Um... And in one case, um, the theorem he had written you know, was the cause of an award before the error was discovered. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it allowed him to gain an award and that award had like monetary consequences, right? He, he won yeah. a prize, like 800 yeah. crowns or whatever. And, um, you know, they paid out that award and then they paid somebody to like write up his work uh, as was kind of pretty common at the time. And that person noticed, yeah, there's this like small flaw, you know, can you just explain this? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. And then he was like, wait, uh, give me a, give me a few more weeks. <laughs> and then he like wrote, I think five times more than the rest of the article combined to try and fix that flaw. And they ended up recalling the editions of the, of the annals that contained that paper. And this was about dynamic systems. It was a famous theorem about dynamic systems. And basically, he was, he was brilliant, but, you know, he made this mistake. And in his desperation to fix that mistake, he basically invented, like, the theory of dynamical systems. It was kind of fun. <laughs> but was it a really mistake, or could he explain, yes, actually? It, it was a mistake. Uh, it was like actually a mistake and he okay. was like there was like some case he had forgotten and the case he had forgotten like didn't quite satisfy the theorem and and it was also by far the more most complex case okay and, and this was about dynamical systems i think the competition was um yeah so people had understood already at the time that it was hard to solve differential equations and um you know, even for planetary systems, if there's only two planets, you know, they, they orbit in an ellipse. But if there's more than two planets, um, things get messy. 
And so one legitimate question was like, oh, is the solar system like going to start going crazy because there's all these planets? And, you know, that that was the competition. And he won, but uh, he got the answer wrong in some sense. Uh, but again, I don't know the details of this. And his other yeah. famous mistake was, um, so, you know, he, he also invented essentially uh, homology theory. And, um, you know, with others, but he, he was one of the big pioneers of homology theory. And uh, one of his theorems, quote unquote, uh, was that um, if you have the same homology groups as a sphere and, and you're, you know, you're some like closed differentiable surface, then, then you are a sphere you know, you're homeomorphic to a sphere. And that's false, right? There are, there are things that are sphere-like in terms of their homology, and they are not actual spheres. And th this is a pretty embarrassing mistake as well, because, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like... What? What, um, is that? what is a homology? Sorry. Oh, uh, sorry. It, it, it's just a, a way to associate groups to topological spaces. So you take a space and you you look at it in a certain way and you get a, a, a commutative group. And, um, you know, in general, if the two spaces are, uh, you know, they look alike, they're going to have the same groups. And right. the question, the big question is like, what, <laughs> how, how much of the converse holds, right? If the, right. if the two spaces have the same groups, uh, you know, how alike are they? Uh. Um, so yeah, there's a whole big field of mathematics and, um, right. So yeah, yeah, I think I think that's enough of, of Poincaré. Our interests here. Yeah. Let's go back to <laughs> to, to Gerdo. Uh, where where do you wanna? Where would you like to to go next? Do you wanna start talking about the the theorem itself? Yeah, sure. Um, so so stating the theorem is actually a little subtle, um, especially if you want to state it completely generally. Um, we can keep. Uh, let's see. All right. Let, let's try to state the theorem. Basically, mm -hmm. uh, you want a, a formal system, all right? So by that time, kind of what a formal system was, wasn't completely resolved, but it, it was mostly resolved. People knew what a formal system was. You know, you take first order logic, you add axioms. And Gödel's theorem roughly speaks about um, formal systems that have the ability to talk about numbers. Okay, so, you know, um, what, what that means is a little vague, but for the most part, you could just say a formal system introducing express, you know, addition, multiplication, you can quantify over numbers. You can talk about equalities. You can talk about, you know, zero successor. Uh, usually when people say numbers and like good old like environment, they mean, uh, you know, positive natural numbers. Um, so zero and greater. And um, one thing people kind of knew at the time that Goodall made really precise was that um, that already having the natural numbers gives you quite a, a, a bit of power. And uh, you can essentially use the natural numbers to talk about things like finite sets and, um, you know, systems of symbols and graphs and, and anything you really want to talk about that's finite. Uh, you can do that just by 
uh, encoding it into a question about numbers. Okay, so um, so you have a system that knows how to talk about numbers, and um, uh, you, you kind of want it to have some additional properties. Uh, you, you want it to um, be computable in some sense, right? So at the time, computability wasn't completely nailed down, but they were very close. Um, you know, Turing's paper came out in 35, and this is 1931. And Gödel also proposed a notion of computability, and Church did also in 1935. So we were very close to having notion of computability. And so, you know, basically already Gödel understood, if you want to talk about a formal system, you have to be able to enumerate using some computable machinery, uh, enumerate all of its theorems, right? You're gonna be able to run a machine for a finite amount of time. It's gonna crank out a new theorem. And you know that that theorem is part of your formal system. So that's an important ingredient because basically if you can't do that, that means that there's no way to know what your system proves. And um, uh, when we get to the, the good bit, uh, I'll explain how this hypothesis is actually quite important, but it's also kind of reasonable, right? You, you want to say, okay, your system is like, you can actually prove theorems with it, you know, as a human being without needing some magical, you know, genie to tell you what the theorems are. Um, so people talk about recursively enumerable theory, theories or nice theories or whatever. Um, but that's, that's, you know, that's something you want. So you want to be able to talk about numbers, you want to have a nice theory, and then you just want enough power. You, you want to be able to essentially have the power of being able to talk about addition and multiplication, right? Um, just addition is actually not enough. Uh, you really have to be able to talk about multiplication. Uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting fact, but, um, all right, so, so essentially, if you have a theory that's powerful enough to do all those, the incompleteness theorem, the first one, says, okay, if your system is consistent, actually, Gödel's theorem had a slightly stronger uh, uh, hypothesis, but whatever. If your system is consistent, then there is no way to make it complete. There is no, there, there's always some formula that you can neither prove nor prove its negation, right? So that's what completeness means. Completeness means, in this sense, completeness means you can either prove a thing or you can prove its negation, and it's one of those two, right? So the first incompleteness theorem says, if you have enough in arithmetic, if you're uh, sufficiently computable and you're consistent, then there's definitely a theorem that you can neither prove nor refute. Your, your system is incomplete. And it, it's a really powerful theorem because it's basically, it says you can't, you can't save yourself by going to a more powerful system, right? You can go to a more powerful system that proves more things, but that, all, that system is also gonna have, uh, uh, you know, uh, a sentence that that it can't decide and so you know so this is really like the the, the way he stated in his original paper was not quite as precise as that but it was already clear that that was the case and, it, and it's already clear at this point that you've completely killed 
you know, the first ambition of the Hilbert program, which is to say, sorry, the second ambition of the Hilbert program, which is to say you never, you can never build a theory that proves all the things that are true and that's consistent. Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> yes, yes. I actually, does it, does it also, also means that, does the first, the first incompleteness theorem say anything about being able to prove its own consistency? No, it, it doesn't. Um, but, but it's used in the proof of the second theorem. And, okay. and the second theorem says, such a system that satisfies these same conditions, you know, it's, it's recursively enumerable and it's, um, you know, it has enough arithmetic, cannot possibly prove its own consistency. And um, actually, it's a tiny bit, uh, the, the hypotheses are a tiny bit stronger, but they're basically saying, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're saying something based the, basically that, that's any theorem that's that strong or stronger can't prove its own consistency. Yeah, the proof definitely uses the first theorem. But mm -hmm. but it's not it, it it's not like an immediate consequence. You have to think a little bit, right? And why does it matter for us for for a a theory? I think there there are a couple of questions that that we that we can ask here. The first one is what exactly is a theory, right? Like what should we have in mind when we when we're talking about a theory? And the second one is why do we care for them to be consistent? To, to be consistent. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. Okay. So, so what's a theory? Um, a, a theory. Yeah. It, it's hard to give a, a definition that's as general as you want it to be. And, but that still says what you want it to say. So, you know, in the ML post sense, a theory is just a, a computer that prints senses, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the, the most general picture. Uh, that prints strings, right? Every once in a while, it's going to print a string. Uh, but that says nothing, right? That's a very boring definition because it, it, it's not what we mean when we talk about a logic or a theory. Um, here's a much more wishy-washy definition. A theory is whatever you need in order to prove theorems, right? You have okay. theorems in mind. You have definitions in mind. You want to be able to state those definitions, prove those theorems. Okay. Um, what logicians, what classical logicians will often take as a theory is just first order logic plus a bunch of axioms. Um, and that's kind of nice because it's precise, but it's also kind of vague. And uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's not, it's not vague. It's very precise, but it's also kind of, um, it excludes a lot of things that we're interested in, like type theory, right? We, we want to be able to say type theory is a logic and, um, you know, this first order logic plus axioms does not capture that at all. So, okay, so, you know, where do we go from here? I, I'm not sure what the true like general definition is. Uh, it's one of those, you know, I know it when I see it thing. <laughs> Right. Um, no, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm personally satisfied with this idea of it's something that we use to prove theorems, right? Like it's something that we're going to be able to reason about something else. Let's put it that yes, way, right? Exactly. And th that brings the next question, right? So we are proving that this, these theories are, are consistent, but why do we care? So 
Okay, so again, we, we can't prove that these theories are consistent um, because of the second incompleteness theorem. But uh, why would we want to? Well, uh, certainly um, uh, in any theory, uh, how to say this, in any reasonable theory, you have this principle of explosion, right? Which is roughly saying, if I can prove false, or if I can prove zero equals one, I can prove anything. Yeah. All right. And a theory that proves anything is useless, right? Because you, you want things, you want some things to be true and you want some things to be false, right? You want yeah. some things to not be true. Uh, like if you're proving a property of software, saying the software is never going to crash, if you can prove that, but you can also prove that the software is going to crash, like what do you have? You, yeah. you haven't proven anything, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so you really want, so there's this line of like things that are intuitively true and things that are intuitively not true. And, and you want to at least be able to like, know some of those things right you you want to know some true things and you want to know that some things aren't true yeah in a way it's kind of it's kind of useless huge if, if everything is true or, or nothing is true right like okay in my theory one and zero are the same so every single number is, is exactly the same yes. number so what what, yeah, what, yeah. what what are we actually doing here like doesn't yes, seem like exactly there's, there's no much value right so so one thing that 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 is a value is that you know there are type systems that can be viewed as theories, but that are inconsistent, right? That, that happens. In fact, most type systems are like that, right? You can build something of every type. And so they're inconsistent in that sense. Right. But the programming language that, you know, that has that type system is not useless. It's a programming language. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and so, okay, so so one there's a case to be made for inconsistent systems as programming languages. And here's a fun fact. When Church invented the Lambda calculus, um, the story goes, and this is actually a true story. I just can't, um, I just don't know what the reference is offhand. He invented the Lambda calculus as a potential logical system to be able to prove things. And it's very elegant, right? Basically, you represent the universal quantifier. You, you represent bound variables with lambdas. And you represent universal quantifiers. Basically, this function returns true always. And um, you can represent if then else. It's, it's very elegant. So the anti-planet calculus is a very elegant system of logic. Unfortunately, it's inconsistent, <laughs> right? There's this thing called the, <laughs> the church paradox. Um, and when Church noticed this, he somehow he you know he made lemonade. Um, he was like, "Oh wait, this is actually a great programming language." And then you know, in 1935, <laughs> he published this paper about you know Church, the, the Church thesis, and you know he proved that his system was as powerful as Turing's, and it was great. So so you can make a fantastic lemonade out of uh, you know these inconsistent theories, but they they they're programming languages more than they are uh things with which to reason about right right you can you can compute you can get churn some valves there to to crank numbers for you and from numbers you can crank a bunch of other stuff right yeah, yeah, yeah. but if you want to actually prove your theorem so going back to the idea of that theorem of a, of a of a theory then it's not very useful so right. don't 
go out in the wild trying to prove things in the sea that's not that's not very good (laughs) yeah right so um one question that i that 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 it rose from here was that okay so we're talking about you're talking about this consistent consistent theorems and why do we care for them to be consistent and there, there are some interesting stuff that we can do with inconsistent theorems as well. But so going back, you said that, okay, so let's see if I got this right. If a theory is strong enough to have numbers and interesting properties that we care about those numbers, plus and, and multiplication, and we have those interesting axioms that we usually use, is this what they call the, the piano ar- arithmetic? Is that, is that this? Um, yes, piano arithmetic is actually stronger than what you need. What you need is, okay. uh, people often call it Robinson arithmetic. So, uh-huh. um, or minimal arithmetic or just the letter Q, um, that that's like piano arithmetic, but without induction. So it's, it? so it's oh, much, okay. much weaker. Okay. Okay. Right. Right. So that's all I'll, you I'll need. Get, I'll get back to this in a second. So okay, so we have we have this theory that is large enough to have Robinson arithmetic, which mm-hmm. is piano arithmetic without without axiom. We'll come back to this in a bit, or without induction. Okay, and you said that doesn't it's it's what Godot Godot and Copernicus theorem is saying is that doesn't matter how how you can you can add even more axioms and make this calculus this theory even even more robust. But there is no way for you to recover completeness. It's always going to be incomplete forever. So does this yeah. mean that you're never going to be able to prove completeness? So there's always going to be a way for you to show that some stuff in any calculus strong enough to talk about this stuff is, is, is not going to be complete. There's always going to be some theorem that you cannot prove. Correct. So So... Um, so the two hypotheses that you didn't talk about, which are the theory is uh, computable, recursively enumerable, and two, the theory is consistent. Those are important extra assumptions, right? But under those extra assumptions, that's correct. There are theorems. Every time you have a system, you, you can point to an actual concrete sentence where you know that if that system is consistent it can't prove that that theorem okay so there are things that are easy to check right if it's easy to check that your system has enough arithmetic it's easy to check that your system is computable you know recursively enumerable um the thing that's not easy to check and in fact impossible to check by the second theorem is consistency all right so you can always point to a sentence and you can always say this sentence this sentence right here if the system is consistent then the theory won't be able to prove this sentence so because it's in- okay so i think i think i'm starting to understand now so we're, we we get the first the first incompleteness theorem from Godel, and it's saying something about the the incompleteness of the system mm-hmm. assuming that it's consistent but then sure. he came up with the second with the second theorem that uses this sentence that you, that you can build and to show right. that this system is incomplete. You can use this sentence to show that you can, you actually cannot know if your system is even sound to begin with, right? It, Consistent. Yeah, correct. Right. Correct. And yeah, so so in some sense, you're, you're like the first theorem is like, 
oh, there's some sentence somewhere that cannot neither be proven nor refuted uh, by your system if it's consistent. And the second theorem says, oh, actually, here's one of those sentences. It's just consistency itself. Consistency (laughs) itself is one of those sentences. And uh, what's kind of fun, so, so, okay, so in, in Hilbert's, program right you 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 can't really any system that tells you it's consistent isn't that trustworthy right it's like you meet somebody and they say oh i never lie you can't really trust that person necessarily right you don't right. you don't know if they're telling the truth at that moment and what Gilbert showed was even worse than that it's if you meet somebody that says i never lie you know that that person is lying in some sense. <laughs> you know that that system is inconsistent. Wow. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. And and the, the horrible thing here is that there's a simple argument that shows essentially once you have this, right, a, a system can't show its own consistency. That doesn't really matter. You're never going to trust that theorem anyway, right? Because if a system says it's consistent, well, maybe it's inconsistent anyway, and, and it's saying it's consistent. But because of the second incompleteness theorem, things are even worse. You can't take a small theory, a very trustworthy theory, and use it to prove the consistency of a much stronger theory. You cannot do that. Okay, and here's the analogy. What you can do, what you can do with human beings is you take a person that you already know to be trustworthy, right, by their actions or whatever, and you can ask them to vouch for another person that you don't know, right? So another person that you don't know may be less trustworthy. You can ask the person that you do know that you already trust, say, oh, yeah, that person, you know, is a stand-up person. And um, you can't do that with logical theories. You can't take a very trustworthy theory like piano arithmetic or minimal arithmetic and ask it to prove the consistency of Zermel or Frankel, right? You cannot do that. And the reason is simple. It's essentially, if you could do that, because Zermelo Frankel shows consistency of piano arithmetic, and it, and it really does, you, you could go full circle. You say, oh, piano arithmetic shows consistency of Zermelo Frankel, Zermelo Frankel shows consistency of piano arithmetic, and there's kind of transitivity where you can go around the loop and say, oh, therefore, piano arithmetic can show the consistency of piano arithmetic, right? So if you know, piano arithmetic could show the consistency of Zermel or Frankel, you'd be in trouble, right? You'd have this second incompleteness problem where you'd be showing your own consistency and therefore you'd be inconsistent. And so that that is really like the killer of Hilbert's program. You cannot do this bootstrapping where you take a trustworthy theory that talks about finitist mathematics and use it to prove consistency of a strong theory that knows about infinite sets. So the second incompleteness theorem is like, it's, it's the payoff, right? It's the real theorem that people care about. And it's a very powerful theorem, right? It's a very mean theorem because it's saying you cannot build trustworthiness in this way. You either have to believe something is consistent or know that it's inconsistent. There's no middle ground. And I, I think that's beautiful. It is. It is. It's, it's mind-bending as well. It's, wow. It's hard to to get your head around that you, you just you just cannot get it consistency like that. But um, so it seems to me that although sure we we care a lot about piano arithmetic and it's the base of of a lot, but 
maybe there is a way to go a little smaller than that, like use a smaller calculus than than piano arithmetic or Robinson to show that that one is consistent. Can you why 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 do we focus so much in in, in piano and, and Robinson arithmetic? I mean, yeah. So that's a good question. I've always argued that um, there are some aspects of the classical presentation of uh, the incompleteness theorems that are really unnecessarily complicated. Um, at the time of Gödel, they were kind of necessary. Like, for example, Gödel proves his theorem intuitionistically. That's kind of fun because there was still a big debate. You didn't people didn't know if classical mathematics was like really worthwhile. And so he's like, okay, just to make sure I don't get any arguments, I'm going to prove, I'm going to talk about arithmetic. I'm going to prove everything constructively. No, no one can like, he, he was very careful. He was very, he hated the idea that anybody could find a fault with his like logic. And wow. so, so he is very careful in that respect. But today um, I think, Arithmetic is kind of unnecessary. We should just be talking about a theory that knows how to, you know, encode trees or strings and replacement. I, I think that's much more reasonable. Um, Would be something strong enough to encode computation in a way, something like that? Yes, yes. Right. So, and, and basically anything strong enough to encode computation is going to be subject to this theorem, right? So, so the, the kind of intuitive understanding is once you had enough computation, um, and some of the proofs make this really clear, right? You encode uh, Turing machines or some form of Turing complete computation, and then immediately, bam, you get incompleteness immediately. So, so that's kind of the, the trade-off you have to do. If your logic is strong enough to really talk about computation in a nice way, and, you know, and it's uh, recursive, and it's consistent, then you know, the incompleteness theorem applies. There, there's no, there's no real escaping that. It's starting to make a little more sense to me too, because um, um, the next question I would have is why would computation be the CERN of, of like, why would we be interested in computation if you're talking about proofs, right? But then we go later on, we, we figure out about the, 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 the proofs that programs isomorphism. So what proofs are doing is exactly in a sense, a computation, right? Yeah. Does that make I mean, sense? Yes, but I'm not sure I completely wholeheartedly uh, mm -hmm. agree with that statement. I, I think the the important thing, so so the 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 important thing in the incompleteness theorem is you should be able to um, express in arithmetic the set of all theorems, right? That that's that's a necessity, and um, if um, if your theory isn't computable, you can't do that, and the theorem doesn't apply. But also, it means you you can't you can't use your system, right? In Cock, right? If you write a proof, Cock checks the proof and says yes, this is a proof, or no, this is not a proof. Mm, right. And um, if you don't have that, then arguably you don't really have a logic, right? I feel like the prerequisite for a logic is you should be able to know if you have a proof or not, and that that no, that quote unquote, you should be able to know is just, there should be a program, some program that checks proofs. And this is like the strongest possible requirement, right? I mean, it, it, if there is no program, if there's no computable way to check the proof, then you've got nothing. And 
anything weaker than that is unnecessary because um, because yeah, you're allowed to use up to Turing machines to check your proof basically. And uh, the incompleteness holds for anything weaker, right? So, so that in that sense, I think there's a there's a, a connection between what we actually care about is being able to see if we have a proof or not, as mm -hmm. human beings, you know, that are finite. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned that um, all his Alcoto's all proofs is actually intuitionistic. So he, he actually shows he, he doesn't use any classicism any anyhow, and he actually show all of all of those stuff. Um, is it is it too hard to to understand what is the intuition of, of, of his proof here? Is there because well it's kind of what what intuition is what intuitionistics kind of care about as well is kind of like in the content of the proof in a sense that the proof in a way is telling you something. Is there something some some key intuition in his proof that makes things to work as they work like? Is there other application for this same sort of proofs? Does that make sense? Yes. Um, I I mean these proofs are very constructive. Um, I, I would say so. So one thing that comes up quite a bit um, when you study these kinds of things is there. There's a theorem called uh, the Cleany fixed point theorem. If that rings a bell. Not for me. <laughs> okay, well, in the theory of computation, there's this kind of fixed point theorem. And essentially, it says it says quines are possible, right? This is kind of a weird uh, thing. If, if you know what a quine is, uh, that helps. Which if, I don't. If you don't, it doesn't <laughs> I'm right. sorry, I'm making our life so harder. A, a quine, no, it's fine. A, a quine is a program that print that when you run it, it prints out its own source code, mm -hmm. right? So okay. a Python program that when you when you run it, it prints something, and the thing that it prints is the program itself. Okay, so here's what Cleany's fixed point theorem says: there are quine in any Turing complete language that has a print statement. There are quines. There there is such a program that prints itself out. And more generally, what it says actually is that any program, if it wants to, can refer to its own source code, right? And this is a very mind-bending theorem as well, if you think about it, right? Like how could a program always assume that it has access to its own source code, right? You could say, oh, well, maybe it can read on disk and great, but that's not what this theorem says, right? This theorem says like, if you have a Lambda term, right? That Lambda term, if it, you know, if it's a program, if it's a well-formed program, can actually pretend that it has its own AST as one of its inputs. And it's not obvious that's always true, right? It feels like, you know, you, you need to you need to already know what the program is to get its own AST, but the program already has its own AST as part of its, like, requirements. And Gödel's, the intuitive finding of Gödel I always say Gödel had like three big ideas. Each each one of those ideas is like worthy of like a significant paper in itself. <laughs> yeah. But um, so the first idea is how to encode everything using numbers. I think that's the least significant idea. The second idea, which I think is the most significant idea, is you can assume any theorem. Uh, I'm sorry. Any yeah. Any 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 formula, any, any predicate, any proposition can assume 
that it knows about its own encoding, right? So, so Godel showed how to encode any you know, statement as a number. It's called a Godel number. Any predicate, any proposition, sorry, and any, any statement can assume it knows its own Godel number, right? It can talk about its own Godel number, all right? And that fact is also mind-bending. And it's mind-bending in the exact same way. Like, how could a theorem, a statement, know about its own Gödel number, right? If you haven't, yeah. you know, written it out yet, you feel like the, the Gödel number should, should, like, you know, it, it takes up too much space, right? And um, so, so that's that's the real idea. This this idea, which is called the diagonal lemma, is any proposition can talk about its own Gödel number in its statement. All right, and and then Gödel's third idea is just take the proposition this sentence, the the the, the Gödel number of this sentence currently that I'm talking about is unprovable. All right, and that's you know that's the liar's paradox, right? It's saying I'm unprovable is kind of like saying I'm lying right now. This sentence right now that I'm talking about is is a lie, but you know provability. Uh, is 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 you know something you can actually define. So you can actually state that sentence, and then you can show by a relatively simple like chasing argument that that statement can't possibly be provable if the system is consistent. Yeah, that th those are the three ideas, right? The 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 first idea is you can encode uh, everything involving you know statements and proofs using arithmetic. Uh, the second idea is Every statement can refer to its own uh, arithmetic encoding, its Gödel number, if it if it so desires. And uh, you know, the third idea is you can use that to encode this liar's paradox with provability, and and you know, and just then just staring at the consequences of that proves the first incompleteness theorem. Now, actually, it's it's really nice that that you that you you're putting the the words here because. I didn't know that the second idea is called the diagonal lemma, because I, th I always thought like I've seen this this being pointed out before. In fact, I was I was doing some 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 research recently on injectivity of type constructors. If if the listener know what this is, I'm not going to get into much <laughs> yeah, detail. Yeah. And then and then someone just comes up, hey, you cannot have injectivity of type constructors because of I build this diagonal argument here. And I'm like, oh, he's probably talking about some Cantor paradox, right? But no, it's it's Godel paradox, right? It's exactly right, this idea right. you're talking about. We're talking about this type constructor that can self-reference, can can talk about himself. So it's yes, going to be yes. inconsistent. This idea of self-reference, of course, um, is related to the Cantor uh, diagonal argument. And, and there's some beautiful work in some places where people try to find more and more general uh, diagonal arguments, self-reference arguments. Um, so, so the Kleene fixed point theorem I mentioned is also a self-reference argument and, and, and there are others, there, there are a number of others, but, but, you know, at some point you've sort of captured them all and, and it's a very simple idea, but it's also always a very mind bending idea. All those yeah. diagonal lemmas are always a little bit mind bending. Yeah. So in a sense, it seems to me that the, the core idea of what's happening here for, for, Godot's first and second incompleteness theorem. The main idea is that lurking there somewhere in the theory, there's always going to be a liar paradox. 
if you follow these steps. Is, is something along those lines? Yeah, there, there's always, it, you can't, in some sense, and, and this is like, once you, once you, I'm sorry, this is a side note. Once you get into the logic community, you end up with a lot of people that are just don't accept uh, Cantor's paradox and don't accept the incompleteness theorem. I don't know why, but this is an extremely common thing that happens where people are just like rejected, right? They, they, they like, they can't believe, you know, the, you know, the undecidability of the halting problem is another one. People are just like super, just, just ref refractory to that idea of, oh yeah, there are undecidable problems. You know, there are problems that a Turing machine can't solve. And I've noticed that people tend to do that whenever the proof involves a diagonal argument, right? So the incompleteness theorem, the undecidability of halting, the, you know, the, the Cantor, uh, the Cantor paradox, the, the uncountability of like the real numbers. And yeah, uh, I forget where I was going with this, but basically uh, it's actually really shocking to me that, that logicians won't accept it because oh, as I said, I was accept it. it's amateurs, it's amateurs, amateurs. that come okay, in and amateur. they're like, this is very confusing. <laughs> and sometimes the reaction is like, because I don't understand it or because it yeah. feels very counterintuitive, it must be false. And it must nobody's be noticed yeah. that, right? Yeah. And yeah, the, the point I was trying to make was just the, the unfortunately, the theorem is true. And um, or perhaps fortunately, um, and, and kind of the key insight is you cannot avoid this, this self-reference problem if you have a theory with enough arithmetic. So, so yeah, so, so the ability to reference yourself and the expressiveness of the theory are deeply intertwined. And it's the same yeah. problem you have with Turing completeness, right? As right. soon as you're Turing complete, you have undecidable problems. And that's because of this self-referenceability. And what's kind of nice is you can use um, the, the, the undecidability of the halting problem as a very clean and easy way to prove the first incompleteness theorem. So- Really? Yeah, um, this is the way uh, Jeremy Avgad does it in his lecture notes. And, and I think it's kind of the correct way. That's not how Gödel did it because this was before Turing, right? So, 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 so he didn't have the tools, but, but once Turing came, first, first of all, Turing actually does this in his paper. In his, uh, I think the, the paper is called On the Entscheidungs Problem. And he solves, he solves this problem of like, can... Is there uh, an algorithm that allows you to decide whether something is provable or not? And um, as he solves it, he just says, okay, I'm going to find Turing machines. I'm going to show that there are undecidable problems using a diagonal argument. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to use this to prove Gödel's incompleteness theorem that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's only four years old Why at this not? point. <laughs> and and I, I couldn't really find a reference for this when pressed, but I've heard from several sources that Gödel actually thought this was like the correct proof of the incompleteness theorem. Oh. Um, he thought this was notionally the, the right proof. Now, don't quote me on this because again, I couldn't find a, a hard reference for this, um, but it makes sense. It's just such a clean little proof. And here's how it goes. Um, so, so let's take for granted that, uh, you know, Turing machines, uh, there, are, there are problems that Turing machines can't solve. Okay, great. 
So here's something that's rather easy to show, and it's part of this kind of Gödel insight that uh, arithmetic, you know, you, you can encode a bunch of things in arithmetic. You can encode pretty easily what it means for a Turing machine to halt. You just can. Um, it's just like, uh, it's called, it's called a, a sigma one statement. Um, okay. It, it's just a, it's just a very simple statement in arithmetic. And it's, it's basically a statement that's provable if and only if, uh, the Turing machine actually does halt. So, okay. So any theory that satisfies the incompleteness theorems hypotheses can talk about Turing machines, can say what it means for a Turing machine to halt. Okay, so far so good. Now, assume that this theory is complete, right? So it, it either proves a statement or it refutes the statement. Well, it turns out that complete theories are always decidable, right? Complete recursively enumerable theories are always decidable. How, how do you decide a theory? Well, it's very easy. You just take the statement you want to decide and you just start enumerating all the proofs, all the theorems of that theory in like order of size. And basically, eventually, you know, because the theory is complete, you're either going to prove the statement or you're going to prove the negation of the statement. One of those two must happen in a complete theory. And then you're done, right? If you prove the negation of the statement, then the thing is false. If you prove the statement, then the thing is true. Even, but you, in a sense, you don't care if it's going to take forever to, for this. It's going to take a very long time for this. Yeah, it could take a very long time, but right. it can't take it forever. It will appear. Right. Yes. Right. Eventually, one of those two things will appear. Right. When okay. we're talking about Turing machines, we're not usually talking about time. It's like, it's going to happen. If you have the procedure, it's bound to happen. Yeah. Right. The Turing machines know about finite versus infinite. Uh, but that's all they know. They don't know if it's going to take, you know, a million years or the heat death of the universe. Um, okay, but great. But still, um, you have a decision procedure, right? So if your theory was complete, you'd have a decision procedure. And your theory knows how to express termination of Turing machines. Therefore, you have a decision procedure for termination of Turing machines. But that's exactly what Turing showed wasn't possible. And therefore, you have a contradiction. Your theory can't possibly be complete, all right? And that's the whole proof, right? It's like it's like a two-liner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, modulo, it's modulo the details, right? I, I said, oh, you can encode Turing machines. That's a whole bunch of work. Oh, and and uh, termination is undecidable. That's also quite a bit of work. But once you have those two ingredients in hand, you're done, right? It's very easy to prove the incompleteness theorem. So that's kind of exciting, right? And that's how you'd prove it nowadays. You just say, oh, termination is undecidable. Complete theories are decidable. Uh, if you have a theory with enough arithmetic, it can express termination of Turing machines. Now, th there's something I left out here, which is, um, yeah, which is kind of a subtle point uh, that I'm not going to insist on too much. But I said, basically, a theory can express termination of Turing machines. And actually, I use a, a, a hypothesis that's slightly stronger than uh, consistency. Um, it's something that Gödel called omega consistency, which is basically, if I've proven that a Turing machine halts, then it actually halts, right? So it's, so it's more than consistency. It's I, I, I only prove 
true statements about Turing machines. You lost me. I didn't yeah, actually I, ask. I, I, I'm sorry. This is actually a slightly subtle point, and it's not an essential point. So, so Godel at the time had this extra hypothesis, but um, uh, someone called Rosser, um, Moses Rosser, I always forget his first name, um, came up with a trick to remove this extra hypothesis and weaken it to just consistency. But typically what you want is omega consistency, which says, you know, you have a theory that talks about arithmetic, but you don't know that that theory says correct things only about arithmetic, right? So here's something that can happen. You have this theory Q of minimal logic, okay? But you say in the theory Q, oh, there exists a number which is bigger than every other number, all right? You can say that in Robinson arithmetic and you can't actually refute it. Robinson arithmetic is fine with this. That theory is consistent. So saying that there's a number bigger than every other number is false. It's a thing that's not true about the, the actual numbers, the numbers in your like meta theory. But it's something that Robinson arithmetic, as far as it's concerned, it, it has no opinion about, right? It, it, right. it doesn't know if, if that's true or not. And so you can add it as an axiom and you still get a consistent theory, right? Okay. With pan arithmetic, certainly you can't add that as an axiom, but you can add other axioms which are fishy. And in particular, they're all axioms of the form, there exists something uh, such that something weird happens. Like there exists a proof of inconsistency of pan arithmetic, all right? That's, that's a famous one. And you can add those and you can end up with a, with a theory that happens to be consistent, but it says something that's wrong, right? So something that's 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 not true, and um, you, you kind of want to exclude that, right? So so in the proof I just gave, if you have these kind of pathological theories that are consistent but say not true things, uh, the proof breaks down, right? Because you can say things about Turing machines, like oh, this Turing machine halts, even though it actually doesn't halt. Oh, I see. And, and just saying it halts says there exists a number after which it halts. But that you can never show me that number. That number is going to be bigger than every other number you can possibly show me. And right, so that situation isn't excluded by my proof, the the proof so, sketch I gave. I want to I want to just check if if I if I got the the idea right. So, in a sense, is like this is definitely stronger than just consistency of your theory, because you want it to be consistent, but on a on a stronger theory, let's say, right? Because then, for example, in Robson arithmetic, as you said, you can add this axiom that is not quite true once you go to a stronger arithmetic, such as piano arithmetic, right? So it's it can be consistent in that X, uh, in, in that theory, but you want it to be consistent in also a stronger theory, let's say, um, for some definition of what this stronger theory yes. is going to be like. Yeah, so, so there's a precise definition of this. Uh, it's called sigma one sound. And basically the stronger theory in some sense is all the true statements that have a single existential in them. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's not, that's, not a that's not a computable theory, all right? That's a, a theory of true statements, all right? Um, so essentially what you're saying is your arithmetic can only prove true statements of the form there exists x such that some decidable thing that's that's what omega consistency means we we 
that's what good will call it make a consistency today we call it uh uh sigma one soundness okay and you said that later on someone else came and yeah someone else uh, came and showed that actually no you, you don't even need sigma one soundness already okay. consistency is enough mm -hmm. uh, but the proof is so more strengthened right so it's strengthened yeah. the, the theorem in, Correct. The, in the way okay Okay. Correct. And so, right. So, so you, you usually don't want theories that aren't sig that aren't sigma one sound. That's already a bad thing from Hilbert's program point of view. But, but like you know, if you're still holding on to that last glimmer of hope that maybe you could prove consistency, uh, that also is not true, right? Rosser showed that you could you could remove that hypothesis. But wait, I'm a little confused now because with the first and the second theorem in of, of incompleteness of Godel, we have that it's really hard. It's kind of hard to, to prove the consistency of a theory, but uh, just within itself. So let's take Robinson arithmetic, for example. Uh, what do you need to show that Robinson arithmetic is, is sound, is actually sound? How do you do that? Piano arithmetic can, ar can already show that Robinson arithmetic is sound. It can? You just yeah yeah you you, okay. you look at the you look at the axioms of Robinson arithmetic and basically you say okay well are all these axioms true you know from the point of view of my my meta theory right yeah and so oh, in okay. piano arithmetic right. yeah all of Robins all of the Robinson arithmetic axioms are actually true and you can sort of do this in one big fell swoop in piano arithmetic. You can't do it for full piano arithmetic. That's the incompleteness theorem. Right. You can do it for Robinson's arithmetic. So you can always you can you can go a step further on a stronger theory to prove the consistency of a, of a weaker theory, but you don't have the consistency of the stronger theory to begin with. So you can always keep yeah, growing, yeah. but you'll never know if you if you will grow, if your yeah, growth yeah, exactly. will stop. So in the end of the day, you have to trust something. Let's put it that way. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 not only that, but yeah, yeah. You you have to trust each additional strength right each time you go higher you have to trust that if if you want to use it to do mathematics right so so zermelo frankel you have to trust it as its own theory right you can't say oh it's as trustworthy as piano arithmetic because it proves it proves consistent it actually proves soundness as well right it, it proves right right you know yeah i remember when i was studying this and it's like it's it's kind of earth 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 break like it's it's really shattering, exactly because in the end of the day, the mathematician have to trust consistency of something. Like we cannot show that all mathematics is going to be consistent. We have to yes. stop somewhere, right? Yes. And in fact, I, I think it took me years. This is kind of, I always call this the theology of mathematics, right? Because basically, <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> I, I, I didn't come up with this bit, but I read somewhere, you know, Mathematics is a religion, but it's the only religion <laughs> that can prove that it's a religion. And I thought that was brilliant, right? Uh, it is. And um, yeah, so so okay, so so you're kind of like yeah, you're you're kind of proving that you're going to have to take things on faith. And um, something that I I don't know. Part of my path was so so. Okay, here, here's an interesting historical tidbit. Gödel was a realist, all right? He was the opposite of a formalist, all right? So, so that's really weird, okay? He was extremely religious, and he deeply believed that mathematical theorems 
had this deep notion of truth and there was a deep like a meaning of existence of all these theorems and that they were either true or they were not true and like somehow god had this like insight into all these things and humans maybe also had insight even though he himself proved the theorem that is most antithetical to this idea um <laughs> So I find that a little bit fascinating. And, and he struggled with this a little bit, right? His, his whole, like, the later half of his life was a lot of, like, trying to understand how to reconcile this belief that, you know, things are true or they're not true. And the incompleteness theorem that says absolutely you cannot ever know whether this notion of truth makes sense, right? If you had a complete theory... Truth is very easy to define. You just define truth is provability, right? If I can prove right. P, then it's true. If I can prove not P, then it's false, right? And I can always do one or the other. But in the absence of that, the notion of truth becomes much more ephemeral, right? It becomes much more subtle. Right? You can always say, oh, true in the meta theory. And true in the meta theory is essentially just provable in the meta theory, right? So, so true in ZFC means ZFC can prove it. And that notion of truth is much stronger than the notion of piano arithmetic of truth. But the absolute notion of truth is, is not only, you, you know, not clear, but it's also, you can prove that there's no such thing as a truth predicate, right? Um, and that's Tarski's theorem. And it's much easier to prove than the incompleteness theorem, by the way. Basically, you, you want to say, oh, is there a predicate which takes in a Gödel number of some formula P and is true if and only if P is true, right? That's a truth predicate. And you can use the diagonal lemma here, for example, as an application of the diagonal lemma and immediately show that uh, such a predicate would, would mean that the system is inconsistent. I, you, you lost me on the use of the diagonal lemma. Could you expand sorry, a little sorry. more on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so a truth predicate is um, a predicate in arithmetic that talks about a certain number, n. And its intuitive meaning is n is the Gödel number of a true formula. Okay, but its definition is t of n is a truth predicate if and only if t of the Gödel number of a, of a proposition p is equivalent to the actual proposition p oh i see i see right so you want to define what it means for a good old number to be the good old number of a true statement in your theory. right right so you say t of the good old number of p if and only if p that that's the definition of a truth predicate hey but guess what <laughs> uh you can use the diagonal lemma immediately here to say, oh, if I have a truth predicate, I can define uh, the, 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 you know, the, the proposition, which is true if and only if it's false, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? You, take, exactly. you apply the diagonal lemma just to the, the predicate not uh, and T of N. Right. And uh, that's true if and only if it's false. And in particular, Boom. that, that, you know, uh, any proposition that's equivalent to the negation of itself uh, it implies false. Right. It means your, your system is yeah. contradictory. 
So in so, order to have truth here, you would have false and yeah, you broke so, everything again. So Gödel noticed this before the incompleteness theorem. He noticed that you couldn't have a truth predicate, but he didn't publish that because he thought, well, nobody knows what truth is anyway. So so I'm not even going to like <laughs> talk about that. And and then Tarski came years later and said, oh yeah, yeah like let's you know, let's talk about truth in a serious way. And oh, by the way, you can't define truth in arithmetic. Oh but for God. example, ZFC can define truth for piano arithmetic, right? Right. So if you jump up to a higher, much more powerful theorem, you, mm -hmm. theory, you can define truth for a weaker theory. Wow, Godel kind of broke mathematics forever, man. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and so, yeah, so this is disturbing. And it was disturbing to Godel, too, because he yeah. believed in this notion of truth. I personally, but this is really a personal opinion, I don't think okay. truth is a meaningful notion, right? What? Once I really internalized these statements, I was like, okay. What do you mean by that? I, I, I mean, in some sense, I, I'm, a, I'm a positivist, right? This is like the, the Vienna circle. Like other than Gödel, all the people, all the philosophers he hung out with when he was in Vienna defined this philosophy called positivism. And basically positivism sounds like people very positive about things but that's not at all what they were they were, they were basically saying <laughs> we will only believe in things for which we have concrete evidence so it's it's similar to intuition okay. in some sense right yeah and i'm kind of a positivist and so i feel like if you can't define the notion of truth in any meaningful way then perhaps we shouldn't ever consider truth as hmm. you know as a as a, a legitimate notion and that has some unfortunate consequences i think philosophically but i, I think it's the only kind of self-consistent consequence it's, it's the equivalent of severe agnosticism in religion, right right yeah yeah but but i, I mean i don't I, I understand how philosophically speaking it can be um whatever but um it makes sense because you can you can care about many other things. So, for example, when we started the conversation, you said that you were a Draper and you're at AWS, and yeah, in order to yeah. prove important theorems for what we we want here, you you, you don't need a notion yes. of proof. That's not what yeah. we're doing. We are doing is I need to prove that this system is secure, and then you you furthermore you go ahead and you you define what you mean by security here. There's no large yeah, yeah, yeah. way to say to say for all things this is what is it means for all things to be secure no you're gonna say what is secure in your particular field there whatever you're proving there right that that's so. com that's completely right right um also uh, another thing that i've noticed is um it's very reasonable to say okay well i know what it means for a uh you know, a concrete quantifier-free statement to be true, right? I know what it means for saying two numbers multiplied equals a third number. I believe in arithmetic. And it's only when you start talking about unbounded, you know, you know, I, you know, things that are go beyond any concrete bound you have in mind that these that these objections about truth really start to appear, right? Yeah. So when yeah. you talk about a Turing machine halting, you're saying, oh, it might halt in more steps than, you know, two to the power, you know, the number of atoms in the universe. 
And as far as I'm concerned, that question is kind of meaningless, right? If, if nobody's going to be around to see that Turing machine halt, what does it even mean for that Turing machine to halt, right? What does it mean for it to be true that that Turing machine halts? It, it doesn't really matter. It might as well not halt. And so the way I live with this kind of paradoxical idea of no truth is I say, okay, well, there are true things for us as humans in our like limited experience. And understanding, and, yeah. Yeah, and I can sort of like cope with that. And then this general notion of truth, you don't really need it for anything, right? It's, it's talking about this abstract thing that you never actually need to cope with. That being said, I like logic. I like proving things, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. You can't be an ultra scientist, you know, every day and still have fun doing that. No, but it does make a lot of sense what you're saying is as if we are, we are as human beings. Well, we're getting really philosophical, but <laughs> we are as human about beings. The I, yeah, yeah. We are here <laughs> in this particular theory here that we call this existence here. And there are some things that maybe we want to call truth, but maybe it's truth just in, in, the next, in, the, in, in the next theory, right? In the next strange theory, but we're, we don't live there. So it's kind of useless to talk about that in a way. So. Posit positivism, definitely. There's an interesting story here, which I, again, am not qualified to talk about, but that was really the tenet of positivism, right? It's you, you talk, the only things that are meaningful are the things you can really like examine, you know, with your mind or with your hands. And um, I, I think, you know, philosophy, this, this was an, This was before World War II, right? So philosophy has come a long way since then. And a lot of things that the positives, positivists believe like are now kind of not really popular in philosophy. Anyway, there, there is so much more for us to talk about. Um, there are several things I might want to mention. There are, there are certainly theological arguments that involve the incompleteness theorem. I'm really not a fan of them. Okay. So is this is this related to to the later work of Godel with the ontological existence of God sort of stuff? No. Well, not 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 really. No. Um, okay. There are people who are like believe that the incompleteness theorem somehow says something about the human mind and our ability to introspect, and um, I think those I, I really don't subscribe to those. Uh, uh, Theories, uh, but the most famous I think is Lucas, and people talk about the Lucas argument. Um, these are definitely debates about theology, and mm -hmm. I don't really, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I think when you're a teenager, you have to engage with theology. But I feel like I've aged <laughs> oh, yeah. out. I've aged out of theology. I don't care anymore. Um, and Gödel was also lukewarm about this very mathematical approach to theology. He had the ontological proof, as you mentioned, but he didn't publish it. And part of the reason he didn't publish it was he didn't think that was how you should talk about theology. He thought theology is something much more intimate and personal. And so, you know, to a certain extent, Gödel was, was kind of in my camp of like, let's not use math to talk about God. <laughs> this is okay. a meaningless endeavor. What I do want to talk about is termination. 
and um, type theory. I, I think you know I'd be remiss if I came on a, a <laughs> you know a podcast about yeah. type theory. Let's talk about talk that. About. Yeah. Okay. So so the first thing to notice is uh, the the proof sketch I very roughly gave about the Inkling's theorem involved the undecidability of termination. Right. So that's that that's something to note. And another thing that I find really fascinating is if you take a oh, type... Before, before you continue, would you agree in a sense that the th what, what Turing does is in a way an application of the incompleteness theorems? A, yes. a strengthening maybe? Oh. Yes, in some mm -hmm. sense. Um, but, but really this, um, the ability to state the incompleteness theorem precisely really requires you to have a notion of computability. Exactly. That, exactly. So it's kind of like pinning down this particular piece of information that right. wasn't quite clear and further giving yes. what it actually means and what are the theory the theorems behind here. And it's, it's really it's really fascinating to me that this is what actually brought to light our whole field, right? So yes. Yeah. Yes. Tur Turing also you know, again, a whole podcast about Turing, but um, yeah, for sure. He, yeah, it, he, he, and Church, and you know, Emil Post, and others, um, Gödel himself really nailed the connection between computability and you know logic, and, and they 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 understood immediately that this connection was important. And kind of miraculously, also von Neumann, kind of miraculously, or perhaps, you know, inevitably, you know, the people that were involved with building the first actual computers were, you know, included Turing and von Neumann and their students. And so, yeah, they really, they took this philosophical idea, right, that was born in the 19th century, you know, with Boole mm -hmm. and Frege, and, you know, they turned it into something that's, you know, that's the, the crown, you know, jewel of the 20th century, right? Yeah. The, the notion yeah. of computers and universal computers. And so, you know, in some ways, this whole string of, of work is like arguably the most important scientific kind of line of work of, of you know, the century. Right, it solved yeah. an important philosophical oh, yeah. problem. It solved really important practical problems, and you know had these massive industrial applications, and eventually made their way into everyday lives. Right? Maybe Newton had a similar impact, but like I can't think of any other example. Yeah, thinking about it now, it's going to be a hundred years in what ten years? Right? You said thirty-one, nineteen thirty-one was going to be. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's going to be almost the, there. The centenary. Um, I went to the uh, Turing Centenary a few years back. There were some fascinating stories about um, uh, Mel Post, and th there was some really interesting talks about computability and logic. Yeah, what was the point I wanted to make? Yeah, termination. Great. All right. So, so Gödel did incredible things. He was very shy about publishing. Like I said, everything he published was essentially a groundbreaking work in logic. Right. He published something about system T, which I'm going to talk about in a second. He proved, he actually proved that intuitionistic logic uh, was, had the same consistency strength as classical logic, right? So they're both equally as trustworthy as each other, right? So you don't have this problem where 
you know, one is strictly stronger than the other, like ZFC and piano arithmetic. You really have a, a connection between intuitionistic and classical. He proved that uh, uh, you could model, he, 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 he co, he, you know, he was an important figure in modal logic where this, this modality, these box modalities, um, you can uh, you can use them to model intuitionistic logic, right? Where you take classical logic, but you say, oh, box means true intuitionistically. Uh, and he showed that you couldn't model intuitionistic logic as like a, a logic with finitely many truth values, which is kind of an interesting fact, right? You know, in classical logic, there's true and false, and those are the only truth values. And you can add a third truth value if you want, and you get some other logic, but you can't add a finitely, you know, number of those and get intuitionistic logic. And yeah, whatever. Uh, he, he proved a bunch of stuff. Uh, other applications of the diagonal lemma, like, for example, if you add it, you can do this trick with the diagonal lemma, where instead of saying, oh, I, that this sentence can be proven in piano arithmetic. You can say this sentence can be proven in piano arithmetic in less than, uh, you know, 100 billion steps. Okay. And that statement turns out you can prove it in piano arithmetic, but any proof is going to take at least 100 billion steps. And, uh, <laughs> but then if you add consistency, if you assume consistency of piano arithmetic, now you can prove it much shorter just by using the just just by internalizing this incompleteness theorem and uh and so he yeah so he had a bunch of results like this about speeding up like as soon as you go higher in, your, in the hierarchy of strength you you can prove more things but you can also prove things much more quickly much shorter makes sense makes sense yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is a kind of beautiful application. Once you start to understand the diagonal lemma, all sorts of things become like very easy to prove. And um, all right. Anyway, he defined system T, and system T is uh, basically a little programming language with lambdas and recursors, and it's and it's typed. And one thing he showed is basically. Hang on. Before before you continue, um, which year is this more or less? Do we have lambda calculus? Is he using some variant on lambda calculus, or is this something completely orthogonal? What's the idea? Um, I, I mean, we have lambda calculus by this point. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think he's using lambda calculus. Yes. But, okay. But I, I can't nowadays we sure. talk about system T as as a lambda calculus for sure. I'm, I'm yes. I'm curious I, if I I don't want to be too categorical about this because I, I don't actually know. Okay. Um, certainly he, there were some cases I believe where he used uh, his own notion of computability, which involved coding everything with numbers and, right. uh, you know, general recursion. Um, but, but Godel is well aware of the Lambda calculus. So right. uh, I, either is possible. Mm -hmm. um, Anyways, most likely, even if he didn't use it directly, there is influence there. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. he he knew it. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, he, he did, and you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. He he understood simple types. He understood he, he you know this was all a relatively small community. Right. Um, True. Great. So he defines this lambda calculus and it's well typed, 
And um, it, this notion of termination, I, I'm not sure it was really clear to him the difference between termination and just interpreting these functionals into their classic interpretation. But um, either way, the, the essence of his result basically says you can define system T and you can show that if every term of system T has a normal form, then it's very easy from there to prove that uh, piano arithmetic is consistent. And by very easy, I don't actually mean very easy. I mean, it's possible in piano arithmetic itself to prove this implication, right? So piano arithmetic, second incompleteness theorem, can't prove that it's consistent itself, but it can prove if system T normalizes, then piano arithmetic is consistent. That it can prove. Okay. And normalization here is pretty much termination, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Right. And so, okay. So what does that mean? First of all, that means that you can study um, systems. You can study logical systems and you can try to gain intuitive understanding of their logical strength by turning them into languages and then looking at the termination of those languages, mm, right? Right. That's exactly what Gerard did with system F and second order arithmetic. Right. Wow. But that was much, much later, right? Like what, 30 years later almost? I, I, uh, sure. <laughs> yes. Um, let's see. I, I actually don't think it was 30 years later. It was more like uh, 20, 25 years later. This was like okay. the, the 50s. Yeah. And Gerard's result was uh, 72, I think. That's how amazing Goto was because like, it's, yes. a very, it's kind of in a way yes. a similar result, but it was so much earlier. It took like Go 30 Go years, 20 years for people to actually digest what he's saying. <laughs> Goto was stellar. He was astronomical yeah. and he was very influential. He actually, uh, whatever, he, like everything he did is essentially like, you know, the subject of a textbook. Um, <laughs> But yeah, okay, he, he was early, he had these early insights. I don't want to imply that he had these insights alone or that nobody else uh, was working in these same fields um, doing interesting work. Um, but yeah, so, so okay, so now you have this bridge between logical systems and their consistency and type theories, programs with types and their termination. And you know, now enter, you know, Paramatrin Luff and um, De Brin, whose first name I also forget, <laughs> uh, Nicholas Goivert, maybe, Nicholas Goivert De Brin, um, and, you know, Alonzo Church, and, uh, sorry, uh, Curie and Howard, um, and all these people define these programming languages that turn out to also be logical systems, right? With dependent types. And again, here, you can show that termination implies consistency, but of the same system, right? So, so in Martin Love's type theory, termination of that type theory already implies consistency of the system. And you can even prove that in the system itself, right? So it's a system that's a programming language, a logic, and it can talk about all these things. It can talk about its own consistency. It can talk about its own termination. Um, and it's strong enough to prove this implication that termination implies consistency. And so immediately as a corollary of the incompleteness theorem, you have a system like Koch or a system like Agda cannot prove 
it that that it terminates. It can't prove its own termination. And that's kind of cool, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of exciting. So, right. so when I was starting to do research on termination, you know, I, I already had kind of um, discovered this observation, which I thought was mind blowing, which is basically, yeah, there, there's this Godelian obstruction to proving termination of certain systems. And there's actually this very strong family of connections between consistency and termination. Actually, again, it's termination and uh, omega consistency or sigma one soundness. Um, actually, system T terminates is not equivalent to um, piano consistency itself. Okay, it's it's equivalent to sigma one soundness, which is which is stronger than slightly stronger, right. but but right. like yeah, epsilon stronger. And so, this does explain why Koch is such is so annoying to to define terminating programs and doing that structural yes. recursion sort of it, stuff because a, this is really it has hard. to be terminating. Yeah. And B, there's this beautiful result. I, I, I'm not sure who noticed this family of results first. Um, Gerard, I don't know. It, this is probably Kreisel in the 50s or the 60s. Um, you can actually show... Um, you, you can define. You can you, you can say what it means to be definable as a as a function in system T. All right. So you say that a function is definable if there is some formula, some quantifier-free formula, such that with with two variables, right, the input variable, the output variable, which I'm going to call x and y. So some formula p of x y, such that you can prove in pan arithmetic. For all x, there exists a unique y such that p of x, y, all right? So if you say for all x, there is some unique y that satisfies this property, basically you defined a function, right? Because you're saying, if you give me an x, I can give you back a y, and it's, it's a unique y. Wait, but what's the property? Any the, property? It, yeah, it, uh, I'm, I'm defining what it means to be uh, a definable function. A definable function, yeah. right. A definable function is a property that defines that function, right? And, and right. such that Piano proves that, um, you know, for every input there exists an output that satisfies right. that property. Right, right. Great. Okay. That's definable function of Piano arithmetic. Theorem. Every definable function in system T in Piano arithmetic can be expressed in system T as a function from naturals to naturals. Okay, so it's an if and only if. Every function can be defined. And if you can define a function in system T, you can define it in the sense that I said in piano arithmetic, mm -hmm. right? So the definable functions are exactly the system T functions. And okay. so there's this very close correspondence is my point between yeah. proving things in piano arithmetic and defining functions that terminate. And programming, yeah. Yes. Hmm. And of course, in type theories, this, this becomes even more obvious because what's a proof of a for all exists statement except a function that takes in right. an x and returns a y and a proof that, you know, p of x, y. So 
you know, the Curry-Howard isomorphism really realizes, it, it completely marries those two concepts. And so, I don't know, I, I find that fascinating. And, and uh, yeah, and when, when, when I was studying termination proofs for like the calculus constructions and Agdalite systems, it turns out these termination proofs, right? It, again, like Hilbert, you kind of want to say, oh, it's a termination proof. I can just do combinatorics. I can find some measure that goes down each time you take a computation step, you know, and that measure is like well-founded. Uh, but no, those proofs don't work at all. What works is these model theory constructions, um, something called the, the Tate construction or Tate computability predicates. And those proofs end up looking like model constructions. They look like they're building a model. And in some ways, there's this kind of philosophical way to see that, which is to say, oh, actually, because of Goodall's theorem, proving termination is the same as proving consistency. And proving consistency is really building a model, right, that satisfies right. the axioms. And right. so you won't be able to prove termination unless you build a model sneakily in the back. <laughs> Which you won't be able to because of that. Well, you, you, wow. yeah, you can't yeah. do it. You can't do it in the theory itself. So you're going to have to go right. above, right? So in system T, you know, if you want to build a model for system T, you're going to want to. You, 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 well, you know, I, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically, you want to talk about sets and functions between those sets. So, so things are going to get a little bit finicky, and if you want to build a model for system F, things are going to get really finicky. That's why Girard had this like really difficult time proving oh, yeah. termination of True. system F because he had to build this model of system F. And you know, system F has this big quantifier that you can't you can't like use the ordinary function spaces. True. True. So yeah, so there's so I mean this is basically all I wanted to talk about, right? I think there's this really beautiful correspondence between func fast growing functions, termination, consistency, you know, the incompleteness theorem, um, and even certain areas of combinatorics, which I, I haven't really talked about that, but um, there are things called Ramsey theorems, which essentially talk about they're related to termination somehow, right? They, they talk about things that must eventually happen. Like termination is something must eventually happen. And Ramsey theorems talk about that too. And so uh, you end up in the situation where certain theorems of combinatorics end up being very closely connected to logic. And surprise, surprise, Ramsey himself was a logician trying to prove things about logic. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I mentioned so Ramsey theorems. Theory. No, 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 you're good. Ramsey theories are kind of like model model logic. Um, it is a model logic in a sense. No, Ram Ramsey theorems are theorems about well, they're, they're theorems about combinatorics, right? Like the, combinatorics. Okay. Yeah, the famous because Ramsey like what got is... what got me was the eventual things should eventually happen. That sounds like modality. It does, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think these are two relatively distinct subjects. Um, yeah, Ramsey theorems are like pigeonhole principles, like generalized uh, pigeonhole principles. Uh -huh. Like it was saying, if if I if I have a, a finite number of holes and I put pigeons in them, eventually there's going to be a hole with two pigeons. 
And, you know, and then the second Ram the real Ramsey theorem is like, if I color a graph, a complete graph with two colors, eventually this is going to be a click uh, that's, that's all the same color. Yeah. And it turns out that pretty quickly when you dig into this stuff, powerful enough Ramsey theory theorems tend to not be provable in weak um, arithmetics. Yeah, it seems like everything's kind of connected in a fundamental yes. way back yes. to this those, to this property because those mm -hmm. three things are very closely connected: consistency, termination, Ramsey theories. When when we started going th going through the termination thing, you were mentioning also all sorts of different results that Godot also showed. Uh, we could we could definitely spend many hours <laughs> in each one of them, yes. but one that that drew my attention was a close connection between classical logic and, and intuitionistic logic. And you were saying how they are um, independent in a sense. It wasn't, it's, it's, it wasn't clear to me. Could you, could you expand on that? Yeah. So basically what Gödel showed was that you could translate. So, so there's an obvious embedding, right? You can take any intuitionistic theorem and and it's and it's immediately a classical theorem, right? It's a classical theorem where you didn't use and you didn't use the excluded middle. Um, what he shows you could actually also go in the other direction. You can take a classical theorem, and you can change the theorem, so you so you get a different theorem, but that theorem is provable in intuitionistic logic, right? So you take a thing you can prove in classical logic, like you know every Turing machine either halts or doesn't halt, right? That's, that's a thing you can prove in classical logic trivially. And you definitely can't prove that in intuitionistic logic, right? Um, you, you can't prove every Turing machine halts or doesn't halt. Um, but what you can do is take that theorem, mangle it by adding double negations everywhere, by adding, it's mm. not true that you can't prove that every Turing machine halts or doesn't halt. Um, and that becomes an intuitionistically valid theorem. Now it's a different one, right? Let's be clear. It's not the same theorem, but nevertheless is a theorem that you can prove. Right. And what's kind of interesting is if you start with false, you start with the, the statement false and you do this translation, you end up with false again, or something equivalent huh. to false. And okay. so that means, at the very least, that if you could prove false in classical logic, like in piano arithmetic, you could prove false already in the intuitionistic version. All right? And that property is called equiconsistency. Right? You're saying if one of these proves false, then the other one proves false. So like I said, you don't have this Gödel phenomenon where classical logic is strictly stronger than intuitionistic logic and you, you can't relate the two, right? Like, like ZFC, you can't possibly prove consistency of ZFC with piano arithmetic. That, that was the argument I gave earlier where you, you'd end up proving consistency of yourself. Well, that's not the case in intuition, in intuitionistic logic. You can like in intuitionistic logic, you can prove that, you know, if intuitionistic logic is classical is, is consistent. If intuitionistic logic is consistent, then so is classical logic, all right? So in some sense, you know, classical logic has more theorems, it proves more things, it's a little bit more scary, right? Its existence proofs are constructive, but it's not so scary that it might prove false if you already trust intuitionistic logic. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. So that, yeah, I I think that's kind of nice. And what's kind of remarkable here is this translation he came up with. Years later, people in the programming language world came up with this translation called uh, uh, continuation passing style transform. So CPS transform. And inadvertently, they had rediscovered the same translation, except in the programming language version of, you know, the Curry-Howard kind of correspondence. And it really is exactly the same thing, right? If you CPS transform, uh, you know, a program in minimal logic or, you know, some simply typed calculus, you end up at the type level doing the... uh, a variant of the good old translation of propositions. So wait, so th- this this good old translation means that in a way you can talk about the excluded middle, even in intuitionistic logic. Correct. Huh. So what you're doing is not really gaining any expressiveness power, if we can talk about it like that. So classical logic is not more expressive in a way; it cannot prove more things than intuitionistic logic. It, it, it can prove more things, um, but there's always a way to translate those things into a theorem that intuitionistic logic can talk about. But it's usually... Oh, okay, okay. It's usually a boring, it's a less interesting theorem, right? If you prove an uh... existence theorem in classical logic, you don't get an existence theorem in intuitionistic logic. You get the double negation of an intuitionistic theorem of an existence theorem so in that sense yes the the, the two logics are equally expressive but what uh, you know what what people often say when they're intuitionists is oh yeah intuitionistic logic is as powerful as classical logic or it's the same as classical logic we just don't agree on what a classical proof is proving okay intuitionists intuitionists say oh this classical theorem is actually saying something different and what classical logician think? I heard one time as well that uh, on this whole discussion between classicism and intuitionism, it's not as much as about classical logic or intuitionistic logic, but there's a lot about the axiom of choice, actually. You know anything about that? Um, not really. I, I don't know that much about that. Um, it... <sighs> Yeah, I, I don't know. Me neither. I, 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 I think maybe what you read is is classical mathematicians care a lot about the axiom of choice. More people mm-hmm. care about the axiom of choice than about the excluded middle. Right. That's certainly true. And does intuitionistic people, logici- logicians, do they do they refute? Do they accept the axiom of choice? It's just that's, that an no, issue, right? that's an interesting question. <laughs> so in, in some forms, it, de- it depends. So, so what often happens is classically you have one notion and it's equivalent to a bunch of other notions, but classically. And then when you go to in- intuitionistic logic, you take all those same equivalent notions and they break into many pieces that are not equivalent anymore. All right. So, so that happens. Uh, and it happens with uh, the axiom of choice in particular. So, um, so the situation here is actually kind of subtle. There are versions of the axiom of choice 
which are intuitionistically perfectly fine. And you can add them as axioms, but, uh, but you, you can't prove the excluded middle. Like it's, it's, a, it's a valid intuitionistic axiom. There's some computational interpretation that's very reasonable. Um, and then there are other versions of the axiom of choice, which do imply the excluded middle when they're added to intuitionistic logic. Oh. And those, those, you know, typically not accepted by intuitionists. Right, right. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And yeah, so I'm just saying this is, this is kind of a subtle point, right? So um, intuitionist logic isn't one big logic, right? There's often different versions, but um, like hating arithmetic, which is the intuitionistic version of, um, of piano arithmetic, you can't even state really the axiom of choice, but if you add higher order functions, you can state the axiom of choice and and it's not provable, but you can add it as an axiom and it's fine. You still have a computational interpretation. And so that's okay. Uh, people like do that all the time. Uh, what's kind of fun is uh, you can add functions to hating arithmetic, this intuitionistic version. And uh, it's conservative. You can't prove any additional theorems about numbers, right? You can talk about functions, but you can't prove more theorems about numbers. But in piano arithmetic, in the classic version, if you add quantifications over functions, you've added a huge amount of power. You're now in higher order logic. You're like much closer to set theory than you were to arithmetic. And so, <laughs> And so there's this situation where adding choice in the intuitionistic version basically gives you nothing <laughs> and adding choice in the classical version with functions gives you a whole bunch, a ton. And so there's this kind of weird situation where like, yeah, there, there are some things that are hard to reconcile in your mind. Right, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is fascinating. All these it things is. are known it since is. the seventies, but like I rediscovered <laughs> them over the years. Yeah. So before we we go into wrapping wrapping things up, um, there was one other topic that uh, when when I invited you, we I, I I said we could touch on and we didn't yet, which was things that the Godwin completeness theorem does not talk about because I see a lot many times that. Oh, this this is we cannot do this because go to incompleteness theorem, and then all, all of a sudden someone like that. No, no, that's fine because of this and that. Like, are there any main results that are expected for things to break, or sometimes in the folklore, let's say like that, it's expected to break, but it doesn't really, or it's not really talking about it. Is there anything on the top of your head along that along um, those lines? Yeah, I I can't say I prepared this question uh, as much as I'd like. So. So, so one thing is people sometimes invoke the incompleteness theorem, like to talk about physics, like, oh, there can't be a theory of everything because of the incompleteness theorem. That's, as far as I'm concerned, that's completely bogus, right? There, the incompleteness theorem is a precise theorem about formal systems, and that's it. It doesn't say anything about physics. It doesn't say anything about God. It doesn't say anything about, you know, the human brain. It's about formal <laughs> systems and, you know, formal provability for those systems. It has a precise notion, you have a precise notion of Turing completeness. You know, you have a precise notion of what a, a theory with enough arithmetic is. 
yeah. you know, we've explained that it's not always easy to pin down everything that goes and incompleteness thing applies to, but for the most part, we, we have a pretty good picture. And that picture is systems of proofs about, you know, arithmetic. And right. um, so, okay, so that excludes a whole bunch of philosophical discussion, which is, which is like, invokes these theorems to bring legitimacy. Um, one thing that is subtle that I still get tripped up on is um, it turns out, and this is a key ingredient in the proof of the second incompleteness theorem, that piano arithmetic itself can already formalize the first incompleteness theorem, right? So the incompleteness theorem itself can be formalized in relatively weak systems like piano arithmetic, all right? That is a little bit mind-bending. It feels like maybe you're, you're violating one of your rules there by doing that. Okay, so the crucial trick, and in fact, it's the trick that allows you to prove the second incompleteness theorem, is that what you prove in piano arithmetic isn't piano arithmetic can't prove that it's consistent. It's piano arithmetic, if it is consistent, can't prove that it's consistent. All right. <laughs> and that, if it is consistent, makes all the difference. Because if piano arithmetic could prove that it can't prove that it's consistent, that would actually prove its consistency. Because anytime you say piano arithmetic can't prove something, that implies consistency, right? Because inconsistency means you prove everything. All right. So this kind of mind-bending thing here where you can formalize the incompleteness theorem in the system itself, in piano arithmetic, in any system that has these, well, no, in most systems that have these criteria, right? As soon as mm -hmm. they have essentially the ability to do induction, then you're good to go. And that's kind of mind-bending because you feel like something's wrong here. And indeed, people immediately notice, oh yeah, because there's this consistency requirement, that is really the crux. And in particular, it's so much the crux that you shouldn't be able to prove consistency. And that's the second inconsistency theory. <laughs> so there's really Man. like this mind bending thing. Another thing that broke me a little bit the other day was panarithmetic has this property. If you take any finite subset of its axioms, right? It's an infinite system of axioms. If you take any finite subsets of its axioms, Piano arithmetic can prove the consistency of that finite theory. All right. So you can take all the axioms involving zero successor, you know, plus times. And you can take a finite number of induction axioms, right? Not induction over all formulas, but induction over, you know, these specific formulas. You can even take all induction over formulas with bounded quantifier alternations. Piano arithmetic can prove consistency of that theory, all right? And that's a little bit mind-bending to me. And what broke my mind the other day was, oh, piano arithmetic can also prove that piano arithmetic can prove the consistency of all of its finite sub-theories. <laughs> and that, like, that completely broke me. But it turns out that's not quite enough to prove its own consistency. Isn't it, isn't it quite um, that I, it's essentially that is similar to that idea that we're talking, if you go to a stronger 
theory, then you can reason about the, the, the less strong theory, right? But you don't have anything about the theory itself. Yes. But, but what's weird is that you can prove, you can sort of build up that bubble and get arbitrarily close to the theory itself. Right, and, right. And sometimes it feels like you can somehow pop that bubble. Yeah. <laughs> and here's, here's a, a secret thing that people in my field know about pretty widely. But this guy called Edward Nelson, very famous logician, and he thought, you guys are crazy. Piano arithmetic is already way too strong. It's much stronger than people <laughs> realize. <laughs> okay. And so for his whole life, he is trying to say, okay, first of all, how can we do with weaker theories? What does that mean? And second of all, let's see if there doesn't hide some inconsistency in piano arithmetic. And uh, near the end of his life, he came out and said, oh, I, I actually have a proof of inconsistency of piano arithmetic. And it involves this kind of proving its own consistency. And it does it by um, sneaking up on it by taking a series of weaker theories and then taking some uniform bound where like at some point you snap to the, to the full theory. And it involves something called uh, Komogorov complexity, which again is a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, and so he's like, great, I did it. Uh, I managed to use this kind of mind bending uh, incompleteness theorem self-application to prove inconsistency. And uh, A, people took him, pe people didn't believe that he had succeeded because, um, you know, there's very strong evidence that you can't prove inconsistency of piano arithmetic. And second of all, he'd even claim something much weaker. And, you know, second of all, these, these questions are subtle, right? But they took him a little bit seriously because he's a logician that actually did significant work. Um, so people started discussing this question, I think on the N, uh, the N category cafe, which is this kind of, uh, blog about mathematics in general, but mostly category theory. People discussed it. And then some fellow called Terry Tao started weighing in. And Terry Tao, if you don't know who he is, is like a legendary mathematician. Oh, so he comes yeah. and he's like, okay, disclaimer alert, Nelson was like my master's thesis advisor. Or <laughs> okay. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't understand his whole proof. You know, it's dozens or like, hundred pages long. It's written in this very long prose. But if I had to guess where the mistake is, <laughs> I bet it's here. And he points out this kind of like trap of self-reference where you can sort of say, oh, you know, I, I can prove the consistency of this thing and I can prove the consistency of this tower. And then it feels like somehow the tower overtakes the finite thing. He's like, yes, but there's this last step of relating the tower to this finite thing that you can't do. This is kind of a classic mistake when you when you build these kinds of contradictions. And he's like, I bet if there's a problem, I bet it's there. And then a few hours later, Ed Nelson was like, you're right, I retract my proof. <laughs> <laughs> this is something he had worked on for like a year. And Terry wow. comes in, he's like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna use my snow meter. <laughs> <laughs> and Terry Tao is like the god of doing this. What an he's absolute god of, legend. He's wow. a legend. Yeah. He comes in and he says, okay, I don't know anything about your field, 
here's my rough intuition. And it I don't like, read all the like, hundred pages that you're yeah, talking yeah. about, but here's the point here. <laughs> he, he's, he's one of like, I try not to idolize people because I don't think, you know, you know, people idolize, they think there's some magic going on. And even Terry is like, there's no magic. It's hard work and careful attention, but it's hard because he is very good at saying, here's a complicated field with a lot of messy details. I'm going to build this really high level intuition and I'm going to do the work to relate my intuition to the technical details in very precise ways. And he's just a master at that. And he comes in and he has these brilliant intuitions about these very complicated subjects. And, and there's subjects that are all over the place, right? He's famous for number theory, but he's, he's done really brilliant work. He like, he helped examine a, a claim proof of P versus NP. He helped examine all these proofs in ergodic theory and, you know, and additive combinatorics. And I mean, that's his specialty, but like diverse subjects of like, you know, uh, um, uh, like all the over math, strokes. yeah. Yeah, like uh, calculus. Uh, He's done a bunch yeah, of analysis calculus, stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, I deeply believe that his approach, I mean, he's a very hard worker. He's, you know, he, at, at you know, 12, he's like winning the math Olympiad. So he's been at it <laughs> yeah. for a long time and he works very hard. But I think this idea of let's take this thing we don't understand, let's deconstruct it, let's look at the messy details and let's try to build these higher level intuitions about it. That's a very powerful approach. It's really hard too, because the building the intuition is really the hard part of what we do. Like, I don't know. It I is. feel like when we're when we're developing theories and dealing with lambda calculus, we're just you know building a game. It's a it's a set of rules and just trying to manage the game here and there and reason about what this game is capable to do, right? But actually understanding and building the intuition why things behave like they do, that's the hard part. That's when. Yeah, yeah. You're and, awarded and a PhD and that sort of yes. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, sometimes a little bit before that. But uh, my point is, yeah, you have to play the game for a while before you start building the intuitions. Like that's that's a necessary condition. And and that can be frustrating and take a lot of time. Um, but yeah, one, one thing I aspire to is um, I feel like at the time of my PhD and for a few years after, I was hoping to build this intuition of how can you build a model theory for termination proofs? Like I said, hmm. there's this implicit construction of models that you need because of the incompleteness theorem to prove termination of theories like Koch and Agda. And it's clear when you look at the proof that there's a model in there somewhere, but there's a whole, there's like, a little bit of model building and then a little bit of very finicky combinatorics and a little bit more model building. And then, you know, you get the termination proof at the end. What you'd like is to separate the two, say, here's all the combinatorics you need. We'll do it once and for all. And here's the model theory. And it's very, it, you know, you need these power. Well, yeah, in some sense, it, you need powerful tools to build the models, right? You, you need extra power, like, to, to get over the good old hump. But it turns out that building models is very easy in general, right? If you have ZFC, building a model for uh, system F is trivial. Um, 
Uh, no, I'm sorry. Building a model for system <laughs> T is trivial. Okay. And building a model for piano arithmetic is trivial. And so there's no combinatorics there. You just build sets of functions, you check some very simple things, and it's just easy peasy. Uh, and so I'd like that to be the case for um, normalization arguments. Right. So in a sense, kind of like formalizing a notion of here, here are the notions and here are, um, how can I say, a good way to reason about termination in a, in a precise sense, right? Yes. And, and how can we build the tooling behind to enable the developer to reason it in a way that is well studied, right? And what are the steps that yes. it should be taking? Yes. That's, that sounds impressive. That sounds a very yeah. interesting idea. Well, yeah, I mean, I haven't carried out that idea. This is the idea of like synthetic computability. And I feel right. like people, not me, have, have cracked this nut to a certain extent. And I, I'm a little sad because I don't understand the details of this <laughs> development. But, right. um, you know, Carlo Anguilli, a bunch of people at CMU, um, uh, Jonathan Sterling, who's also very active on Twitter, True. have have a proposal, a proposed synthetic theory of computability that's supposed to be an answer to this question I have. Um, I personally don't understand the details. Right. And I personal and I, question. Um, oh yeah, feel free. We can we can edit it out later if you're down to comfortable sharing for a broader audience. But um, do you plan to come back to academia at some point? What brought you to to the industry? Uh, I mean, what brought me to the industry is simple. I didn't find a job in academia. Uh, really? So that's, oh, that's, that's not sad. like, that's a little sad. Uh, I I'm think that uh, I've seen plenty of very deserving people find jobs in academia. And mm -hmm. um, I've also seen plenty of deserving people not find jobs in academia. So in some sense, you know, there's no guarantees. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is I, I could have kept doing postdocs you know, yeah. in, in the hope of like, but at some point my wife was like, yeah, I can't, I can't survive another two years of like not knowing where we're going, flying across the country, yeah. this uncertainty. And, yeah. and the third thing is I, I love talking to people about stuff. I love explaining things, but I didn't love teaching. I, I feel really? like... Yeah, I, I think, first of all, I hate grading people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> second of all, I, I feel like there's this, this unfortunate, I, I don't know what the solution, everybody has recommendations about math education or CS education. I don't have any. It's hard. It's hard to teach people things and it's hard to motivate people, right? If they have a grade at the end of the year, that's what they need to care about to graduate. They have to care about it. That's not what I want them to care about, but it's what they have to care about. And I hate grading. Like everybody hates grading, but I really hate grading. And I also, yeah, I find it hard. I, I want to talk about all these interesting things and I want to show interesting theorems, but the work of understanding these theorems is brutal. And most students need something different they, they need something much more elementary and so the things that i think are fun like the funnest i've ever had teaching was a graduate class about type theory i proved normalization oh, yeah. of martin love type theory it was yeah. fun it, is. it was interesting and i actually learned a lot myself but it you know it was 
I don't know. I, I went to school in France and it was this French style math class where you come in, you get up to the board, you start writing lemmas, you write proofs, you talk about the proofs, you give, you know, you give as homework, they find a bunch of proofs. Undergrads can't really do that or like maybe they can, but they really need to be eased into it and given kind of space to learn about this stuff. And some of them just don't want to, like it's not something that they find motivating. Especially here in the US where undergrads are doing CS mostly to get out in the industry and make the high, the high box, right? Yeah, and, and so I don't know, my teaching experiences, you know, in France and in the US have been lukewarm at best. And, and, I, and I think if you don't love teaching, then you're actually doing a disservice. When you're <laughs> oh yeah! Oh god! Yeah, how many? Everyone had that. Have had that horrible teacher that makes you want to never look at the particular field. Yeah, yeah, yeah field exactly. And like forever. that's my nightmare, right? Because I've had excellent yeah. teachers yeah. that I love and that love yeah. what they're doing, and and, and like, they're inspiring and kind of they have the all the tools to change your life for the better. Yes, but but it's but work. also the tools. Yeah, exactly. It's hard work. Yeah. And I, I actually feel like, you know, the stuff I'm doing right now feels useful. It feels like a true application of this completely crazy out there theoretical <laughs> yeah. work to things yeah. that people care about. And um, so I don't, I don't have an answer to your question. I love academia. I love research. I feel like I'm out of the game. And I also feel like I kind of like what I'm doing now. So, if so. If it makes you know. feel better, last uh, two weeks ago I interviewed Conal Allian, and he's also in the in the industry. He's much older than you are, but he has kept activity in academia, publishing amazing papers. So I don't think I don't, you are. <laughs> I mean, obviously you're going to be doing other sort of works, and you're not going to be rewarded by your papers and all of that. But who knows? You can always yeah. publish your papers if you feel the it's, need. So it's hard. <laughs> Uh, it from is, experience, it I can tell you, Conal is kind of an exception. Um, yeah, he he's he's a great guy. I talked to him not that long ago at some occasion. I still go to conferences, which is delightful. I love yeah. conferences. Yeah, they're um, the best. And yeah, there is some hope of like doing some interesting theory work out of academia. Um, I don't know that I I really have a big contribution to the academic world in me maybe some small paper um i do feel a little bitter about not having this synthetic computability worked out um i, I feel like the game has changed since this homotopy type theory um so i mean type theory has always been kind of a niche subject in the sense of like people studying martinov type theory proving termination you know, there are a few conjectures, but very few and far between. And then there were a bunch of people doing cock proofs and nobody really cared about any of that. <laughs> two, two things roughly happened. First, people kind of started caring about cock proofs for reasons that are still a little bit mysterious to me. <laughs> and second, you know, Vladimir Vavodsky came in and he was super famous. And I, I can't, presume to speak about his contributions but just his fame attracted a ton of people and the people it attracted tended to be homotopy theorists right and those guys 
are serious big boy mathematicians. Sorry, I, I'm <laughs> right. saying big boy as an expression. I mean, serious mathematicians with, with huge array of tools, very sophisticated tools that I don't understand as a non-mathematician. They're, they're just very complicated, big pieces of machinery that come out of this like big tradition of algebraic geometry which is a huge field. It's, it's impossible to overstate how subtle and complex algebraic geometry is. So they come in with this array of tools. It's very abstract, very powerful. And they, and they start doing type theory. And they do it in a way that's completely different than the way I do it. And they do it for reasons that are completely different than my reasons. And you know, now at this point, um, you know, the, the, there's also a, a you know slightly orthogonal piece of work of this formalization of the Kepler conjecture. You know, done by um, uh, someone whose name I forget, but but you know this big conjecture was solved. Then a bunch of mathematicians said, "We can't check your proof; it's too complicated. It's got right. tons of C yeah. code." Mm -hmm. And he was just like, "Okay, fine. I'll prove it in a theorem prover. It's going to take me you know 20 years, but like who cares?" And he did exactly that. Like that's amazing, you know, resiliency <laughs> and and like motivation. But he did that. He proved it in a theorem proof. Was it the and one that was done in Lean? No, this was done in uh, Isabel Hole and like oh, okay, okay, okay. small parts in HLO. Uh, okay. So that was amazing. And I think he, I don't know if he got a Fields Medal, but he got like significant acclaim. And yeah. then you know a third famous mathematician is now interested in lean and he's like i'm gonna do serious you know grown-up mathematics in lean and so and so now this like community of mathematicians is like converging some of them are doing type theory and i kind of feel like this this new generation of type theorists and and when i was doing my phd you know i learned the old style and now everything is in this <laughs> new style so i can't even understand right the statements i can't understand the proofs so i don't know like maybe i'd like to say okay here's an old style reformulation of all these new insights um that's something i aspire maybe to do and I say this to everybody I talk to, like almost literally anybody will listen, but there's an old conjecture in type theory that I feel is kind of ripe for actually being proven. It's a very obscure conjecture. Nobody really cares about it, um, but it has been open for 30 years. Um, and it involves certain type systems and their normalization property. And I gave a talk years ago about uh, pure type systems and why we should care about them. And I still think we should kind of care about them, though, again, uh, people have kind of moved on to more sophisticated type systems. But it's this very simple setting. And uh, basically, it's a family of type systems parametrized by this very simple set of rules. And those rules tell you basically how to uh, the universes you're allowed to quantify over. And um, it turns out that the calculus constructions is one of those theories and the whole lambda cube. So simply type line of calculus, um, kind of this weak Martin Loaf type theory, system F, those are all instances of this and also inconsistent type theories. So star colon star and 
uh, system U, things that people have kind of forgotten nowadays. Um, the conjecture is this. Every one of those systems that is weakly normalizing, so every term has a normal form, but it might also diverge if you rewrite in a different way, is actually strongly normalizing. So every term has a unique normal form, and every way you can reduce will lead you to that normal form. All right, very stupid question. No applications whatsoever. Um, open for 30 years. And like every French type theorist I've talked to has tried to prove that theorem and failed. Uh, so yeah, so my dream is to solve this stupid open question nobody cares about. Um, I do think it's kind of, like I said, I think um, it's kind of related to this thing I'm obsessed with, which is the relationship between models Right. and normalization. Yes. I, I think there's some way to express this as a model theoretic question where you want to kind of say, oh, if this theory has some kind of model, then actually it's strongly normalizing. And um, the problem here is you I don't even know how to formulate that question, right? In general, a type system doesn't it doesn't even know what consistency is. It doesn't even have mm -hmm. a really good notion of model. But if you could formulate that, then you'd have a nice model theory question that really relates consistency and termination in a very strong way. That's that's a, a really interesting question. Yeah, yeah, I, I can I can see how how this would give you approach to to maybe reason at least of of, of this of this open question, right? For Thirty years. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm you said that there is no no real application. I don't know. It seems like a a. a all of this meta theories from the of pure type system in general doesn't seem to have much application, but no, later no. on you figure out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on you figure out there is something interesting One there. One of the mm -hmm. great French type theorists, in my opinion, uh, Alexandre Nickel, uh, did this really wonderful thing. He built a, a pure type system that is exactly as strong in terms of normalization um, to Zermelo type, Zermelo set theory. So we actually built a system that is essentially Zermelo set theory as a type system. And he proved normalization for that theory, which I thought was pretty fun. There's some subtlety there. Actually, set theory is kind of weird in terms of this beautiful correspondence between normalization and, um, you know, consistency. You, you get weird stuff there. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you get, for example, uh, if you do it naively, if you just take uh, set theory and you try to build a programming logic out of that, you can get non-termination. Um, and amusingly, the term that doesn't terminate is uh, it, it's, uh, you, you take an arbitrary set and you take a, a realizer, a, a program that realizes um, the set of all subsets of that set that don't contain themselves and you end up with something that doesn't terminate which i think is very cute because it's the original russell paradox right converted in, a, in this setting yeah in this setting so so there's some cute things that happen there and i feel like people don't know how cute this whole world of termination is in in this setting and I, yeah, that's that's what I want to be an evangelist for how cute, uh, <laughs> you know, the proof theory of type systems is. 
Well, my my doors are always open for you here in this podcast. I think we had an amazing, amazing time having this conversation with you. Thank You're very you knowledgeable so on, on all this stuff. We really thank you for giving us some time to go through all these details. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to, to touch? Um, we still have some time. I don't know that there's anything I could say in a few words. Uh, I, I would encourage people to uh, read about the, read Logic Comics, read about the history of Logic yeah. because it's fascinating. And it's got really interesting characters. I think the theme of Logic Comics is there's a surprising number of logicians that ended up going to insane asylums. All <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it is kind of like surprisingly entertaining, you know, po possible podcast just about the lives of mathematicians. And that's kind of sweet. And yeah, I think there's something very human about self-reference and self-reflection that logicians, you know, take to a, an extreme, right? They really love thinking about thinking about themselves or thinking or having systems that reference themselves in some yeah. way. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think there's something there where if you're listening to this podcast and you feel inspired by the self-reference, yeah, theoretical computer science is, a, is all about that. And it's filled with these beautiful, beautiful, you know, theorems and notions of self-reference that, that I find very, very satisfying just to contemplate. Uh, like when I can't sleep, I'll often try to think about <laughs> Gödel's incompleteness <laughs> theorem because I don't know. Sometimes somehow it's like it's beautiful and it's and it's just kind of exhausting enough to like just lull me to sleep. So yeah, I do recommend yeah, just just like digging digging a little bit into this. And there are excellent excellent references on the incompleteness theorem. Um, it's it's a well well studied subject. There are some very interesting like. There's tons and tons of stuff. One thing I haven't said. Oh, yes. Here's another thing I haven't said. If you take, you abstract away from the arithmetic and from all the details, and you take only the provability predicate, right? And the, the and you, you take propositional, you, you, you abstract away from the numbers and equality and quantifiers. You just take, you just, turn those into opaque, you know, P's and Q's, abstract things. And you just have, you know, the implication, conjunction, disjunction, all, all those logical operators. And then you have a box operator that means is provable. Okay. Now the question is, what types of things can you prove about provability abstracted away from all the arithmetic details? Right, so the incompleteness theorem just says that there's a p such that uh, not box p and not box not p. Right, that's what the incompleteness theorem says. The second incompleteness theorem says not box not box false. There is no proof that there is no proof of false. Right. Right. Okay. Great. 
So here's the question. What are all, can, can you describe in some nice way all the abstract provability theorems, right? I just gave two, but there are others. Okay, the answer A is yes. There's a very simple modal logic that describes all the possible things that you can prove about provability. All right, I find that amazing. Wow. It's called, it's called uh, Gödel-Lub logic. Okay, A. B, that logic is decidable. So if you tell, ask me some abstract question about provability in piano arithmetic, I can tell you whether or not that thing is provable just by looking at uh, its good old love uh, formulation and applying the decision procedure. That is crazy. I just don't know how that's possible. I still haven't really understood deep. So in a way, in a way, if you had this, it's, it's good old love or good love? It's theory. good old dash love. Good old love. Yeah, both of those have umlauts, so it's kind of hard to... If you had this model logic before, if you had this Godot lub model logic before Godot came up with the incompleteness theorem, you would have the incompleteness theorem for free. Yes, if you knew already that that result, that Godot lub <laughs> logic captures exactly provability. Right. right, but I would expect at least... How, how do, you, do you know how old this result is? That's that's mine, Benny. You're 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 completely crushing my reality here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, I don't, I don't actually remember. Uh, uh, I can Google this very easily though. Yeah, don't worry. But um, the main idea is well, I would expect at least that the the Godot result is lying in there somehow. But just you know, kind of wow. I have no, I don't know. That sounds really yeah, hard. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it looks like um. Yeah, it looks like the love conditions were worked out in um, the 70s. I think this this was all worked out in the 70s. Yeah, Gödel is still around. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think Love's theorem, which inspired uh, some of this, what was earlier, was like... Oh, but hang on. 50s. So is it... Do you know if this is strong enough to talk about zermelo franks set theory? So, so again, uh, this is just about provability of abstract things that are, you know, propositional atoms. Um, but yes, I, I believe that this the same that the zermelo frankel theory doesn't say anything more about its own provability than um, piano arithmetic says about its own provability. Right, right. But still, you can say about other properties. Yeah, but of course, you know, Zermelo Frankel can talk about piano arithmetic probability and say a ton of things, and it could talk about a whole bunch of other things that can't even be expressed in this logic. But still, this is kind of cool, right? Uh, oh, yeah. So I don't know. I, I find that delightful, and um, you know, if 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 you find this delightful, there's also like a whole bunch of Smolian books, right? Like uh, the Lady and the Tiger. 5000 BC and other stories that really explore this notion of knowledge and self-knowledge and the knowledge about your self-knowledge. And uh, I've found those books delightful. They're very fun. What, what, are, what are the names that you, that you mentioned? Uh... Oh, uh, The Lady and the Tiger is the title. Oh, of I mean, there is only one author or is it a publisher? Yeah, it's Ray, Raymond Smillian. Oh, Raymond Smithian. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's he's very famous, and he's like, 
the self-referenced guy <laughs> and he, he he loves this modal logic kind of stuff right he often has these puzzles about people that always lie and people that always tell the truth and uh people that it's great there are these great puzzles um about people that lie but that they don't know that they're that they're lying or they don't know what they're talking about so they might think they're lying but actually they're telling the truth because they have incorrect information and so all these puzzles are fun and all these books are delightful and i, I highly recommend all of them well i think talking more about those those things they're absolutely amazing and they would do a whole other episode just <laughs> just on that i think we Please, can yeah, wrap, like, wrap it up wrap it up here again uh, yeah yeah i i love this this was delightful thanks so much for inviting me in this episode there were moments that he literally shattered my sense of reality god these results they're so mind-bending right it's... <laughs> anyways if you have any questions about any of this please send them on our website www.typetheoryforall.com i really don't know if i'll be able to answer them but i swear i'm gonna do my best to find someone who can i will let cody know or I don't know, maybe let them know on Twitter. Oh, and by the way, also follow us on Twitter at TT4All. And that's it. Now I hope to see you guys next time. <laughs> <laughs>